Hi, I'm Matthew Gwynn, novelist and author of The Resurrectionist and The Scribe, and I'm happy to be a guest today for the Just a Story podcast on The Needleman. The Needleman is an urban legend centered around New Orleans, primarily among the city's African-American culture, that the local medical schools and medical students would walk through crowds in New Orleans with needles filled with poison in order to kill people so that they could get subjects for dissection in their anatomy courses. It sounds outlandish and it sounds far-fetched, but if you look at medical history, there's a long-running tension between the community and the med school dating back several hundred years, particularly around the subject of anatomy. It's so taboo to the general population, but so necessary for medical instruction that there have been many run-ins over the history of medicine. And a lot of fear of such things as needlemen, and particularly of resurrectionists, or sack up men, or body snatchers, who would dig up the graves of recently deceased people and carry them to the anatomy lab to sell. Most famous of these were Scottish in Edinburgh, Burke and Hare, who were selling bodies to the University of Edinburgh's medical department. The irony is they never dug up a grave. The first body they came by was a lodger in one of their girlfriends or wives' houses who was ill, an old man, and died. And thinking to make a quick buck, they carried him to the university and sold him. Well, they were so pleased with that return on their work that they began bringing more bodies. But the fact is they didn't dig them up. They just murdered them. And it went on and they were successful until they brought in a body that was not only remarkably fresh, but was also warm. And so Burke and Hare were tried, convicted, executed, and then dissected at the University of Edinburgh. Well, closer to home here in the U.S., there have been, at, by my count, at least a dozen riots all over the country surrounding medical schools. And the poor were the most susceptible to having this uh, grim fate of winding up on the anatomy slab. Down south, where I live, of course, the issue became not so much money or status, but a racial one. And I was lucky to stumble on the story of renovations at the Medical College of Georgia that really happened in the 1980s. It was the campus's oldest building and was once the only building, and thus was the med school itself, including the anatomy lab. Well, workers in the 1980s were doing some work in the cellar, and they came across dozens of bones that had been buried there. And it comes to light that in the old days, graves were robbed around Augusta, the bodies were dissected, and then the bones and the remains were buried in the cellar. Comes to light even more than that, that the medical school in, I believe, the 1840s purchased a slave from a nearby plantation, a man named Grandison Harris, gave him the official title of janitor, set to work teaching him how to rob a grave. That is, how to dig the quickest hole by moonlight, how to extract the body, and how to replace the soil so that somebody coming to visit the grave the next day would not detect that it had been disturbed. Of course, the community knew what he was doing, and he, being an African-American, was forced to target primarily the African-American or slave graveyards to get the subjects for the bodies. Well, I saw this on a documentary and rushed down as soon as I could to my university library thinking I would find not not if somebody had written a novel about this 
body snatcher, this resurrectionist, Grandison Harris, but how many novels there were. And to my great luck, there hadn't been one. And the story was so good that I thought, well, I'll move it to South Carolina. I'll change Grandison Harris's name to Nemo Johnston and see what he does. The story was just so rich with potential because of the role of race, yet again, cropping up in Southern history. The idea of characters doing what they have to do to get by, as well as the religious theme of resurrection, so that the resurrectionist would not just be a grave robber or a body snatcher, but I could also explore the theme of rebirth in maybe making this history set right. So anyway, I hope this little bit of a talk will show you that if you dig into U.S. medical history, you'll see that a story about needlemen roaming New Orleans with poison needles is really not such a great stretch after all. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And welcome back for another episode of your favorite podcast. Oh, well, aren't we just patting ourselves on the back, making some assumptions, declaring our relationship more serious than it is? Maybe I'm projecting. Maybe you should talk to your therapist. (laughs) My therapist won't answer my calls, okay? (laughs) They told me they're not an analyst, and they're not going to do word association with me every single time. Did they tell you not to bring your own ink blots? (laughs) They said to stop making ink blots while I was there, out of their books. Well, I know at least a few people think we're awesome, right? Besides you. I know we're awesome. And me. We're Fabulous. But we want to thank everybody for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes, including Ampersand Museum, who left a nice review, and several people commenting on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all nice things. Nice things are our favorite kinds of things to hear. Actually, we like, we like well-reasoned commentary. We'll learn. We're good learners. And we do want to encourage all of you to reach out to us in any which way you can, either leaving ratings or reviews or coming on to our Twitter at Just a Story Pod or Instagram or Facebook at the same, um, where you can see photos throughout the week and information um, on the episode posted that week and other fun, interesting things. And may I just say that when you were winding up for that sentence and you said any which way you can, I thought you were going to say any which way but loose, which is my favorite Clint Eastwood movie with a monkey. Not a monkey. An orangutan. He's an ape. An ape. A damn dirty ape. No. (laughs) That's bright eyes. Okay, sorry. Or James Franco, depending. (laughs) You can also check out our website, justastorypod.com, where you'll find lots of information, resources, videos, and fun artwork about every episode. Fun artwork. Kind of creepy artwork. My artwork, whatever that means. And we would love it if you guys would give us a call on the Urban Legend Hotline. And that is a place where you can leave all of your thoughts, feelings, hopes, dreams, local urban legends, folk tales, what have you. And the number to reach us there is 
3375. And on the website I mentioned, you'll find links to our merch store where you can buy t-shirts and all sorts of things with a design by... Me. It's me. You. Me. And also you can find links to our Patreon where you can help support the show in whichever way you can um, with lots of fun rewards, including Patreon exclusive stickers exclusive content many episodes just the stories also you also have the options of digital meetups that we'll be having a few times a year or even the chance to come on the show i would love that prize you have that prize and back to the story at hand today as the show started we had author matthew gwynn on to talk a little bit about resurrectionist the needleman And we want to thank him so much for taking the time to give us that little mini talk. It was very informative. And I just want to tell everyone to go back and listen to it again. And imagine the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman saying it. And it's just really not a stretch of the imagination. I think Matthew Gwynn sounds like Philip Seymour Hoffman. I hope he takes that as a compliment. It is. You know I mean it as one. (laughs) So let's take a look at some of the stories that he mentioned and where these ideas may be rooted in American culture. This week, we're going to take you back to turn of the last century, New Orleans. Let's go. And the tale of the Needlemen. The Needlemen? Yes. So, this is a story that was recorded in a book called Gumbo Yaya. Was that Robert Talent? He's one of the three authors. Robert Talent is one of my favorite folklorists. He's fantastic. Right, and so this book was compiled by three folklorists way back in the 40s through part of the WPA and the Louisiana Writers Program. That communist program? Commies. Commies. So, in the book, he starts off the story with a quote from one of the local New Orleanians. An informant, as they would be called in the folklore world. And she says, No, sir, I sure don't go out much this time of year. You take a chance just walking on the streets. Those needlemen are everywhere. They always come around in the fall. You see, they're medical students from the charity hospital. No! Trying to get your body to work on. That's because stiffs are scarce at this time of year. But them men ain't working on my body. No, sir. If they ever stick their needles in your arm, you're just a plain goner. All they gotta do is brush by you, and there you are. You've been stuck. Of course I believe in it. Okay, so these are rogue medical students. No! The worst kind of rogues. Sure. And so this is a story that was popular throughout New Orleans, but especially in the black community. Okay. Really, Robert Talent and the writers of the book kind of trace this story back to, you know, they're saying lots and lots of ideas. And he says it could even trace back to, like, voodooism, where, like, epileptics were thought to have a spell cast upon them, or conjure, whenever they had a seizure. And it was thought, you know, if they they would die from the attack, this could be caused by a needleman. They believe that epilepsy was caused by needlemen. Or conjure. You know, saying that these might have been kind of conflated ideas. Okay. We're going to go into a lot more ideas on that. So in 1924, in Carrollton, area of New Orleans, said that fiends slunk about the darkest streets, 
sprang out and jabbed women with needles and fled. No, that's not very nice. But why? To what end? I know. I would kind of thought it was funny that they fled in this version of the tale. Mm. I think it's just like another step. You know, playing telephone, story changing a little bit. They'll stick you and run away. It's not very nice. It caused quite a panic. Of course, skeptics said it was just people's imagination or maybe a little bit of prohibition gin. Mm-hmm. But one black man was actually arrested carrying a 26-inch bayonet. And he That's stayed, bigger than a needle. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he said that he was carrying it to protect himself from the needle man. You know, we talked about this story very briefly in our Welcome to Reality episode about the needles in the theaters. And so this was also a fear. Of course, there weren't hidden needles. It was people that would come and sit by somebody. One on each side, stick you with a needle. You know, these needles contain some sort of sedative, mm-hmm. and then they'd be able to carry you off. Because no one would stop you as you were walking out of the theater. With I guess you'd use the emergency exit. And it'd be in the cloak of darkness. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, there were some other similar stories around the area, such as the gown man, and he was tall and slim, wore a black cap and black gowns. And he would go after women while they were walking alone. So priest. Those weren't women. Aww. Aww. Sorry. Catholic bells. Catholic bells. And he supposedly drove a big, long, black car. Ooh. I'm sure it was a Cadillac. Is it? It's <laughs> it always on. a Cadillac. It's, if you're in the South, that is the, the car of legend. And in 1930s in Gentile, also an area around New Orleans... You had the Domino Man. <laughs> and he was a creature that would wear a white robe and a hood. Oh. But he had the abilities of a monkey. Monkey Needle Man? I don't know. I mean, they supposedly he was a man, but he had the ability to like, scamper up a tree. Oh, my. <laughs> um, as children would be walking by, he would jump down out of the trees and scare them and then vanish. Like supernatural vanish? Maybe. I don't know. Could be. Some people say. <laughs> there was another one in Baton Rouge in the oh. 1890s. And it was called the Hugging Molly. I'm sorry. So this is where a white-robed individual who would hide among the bushes on North Boulevard until a girl came along. I know where North Boulevard is. Well, we live like a mile from, from it. it yeah. <laughs> and then he would rush out and crush the terrified girl in a passionate embrace. Like, just hug them. Yes. Big squeeze. Bear hug. Bear hug. I don't know if I want to be hugged by somebody that like runs out of the bushes in robes. It just doesn't appeal to me. Does anybody? I don't know that I want to be hugged by most people, though. Kind of standoffish. That's because you're a nice queen. That's true. So, you know, this is one of those things, oh, it's an urban legend, it's an urban legend. But then, according to the Gumbo Yaya, years later, they found the garment. No. In a dingy loft. Where a mentally unbalanced man had been living. I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say that could be half Louisiana. The mentally unbalanced part? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Living in a loft with weird garments. I mean, they could be like old Mardi Gras costumes. They could be so many things. Not saying that that discredits the story. I'm just saying it's open to interpretation. Just saying. Just saying. So another story going around at this time was of the Black Bottle Men. Black Bottle Man. So this was very similar to the Needle Man. 
in that these were supposedly medical students or medical workers. Mm-hmm. And whenever you enter Charity Hospital, they'd give you a swig from the black bottle. Did it have three X's on it, like in a cartoon? Oh, it had to, right? <laughs> I think there were like little fumes coming off the side. Yeah. This is a very cartoon scenario to me. But actually, they really did do this in a way. No. Now, it wasn't used to cause you to get knocked out and they take you down to the cadaver lab. It was used as a diuretic. They would give them a dose of cascara upon admission, which is nearly black. And when you add magnesia to it, it become this like deep, dark brown color. Mm-hmm. And so everyone thought this was this kind of death-dealing drug they were well, giving. I mean, yeah. To the indigent population of New Orleans. It looks, I'm sure it looked and smelled and tasted like it. Okay, so I I feel like because we know it and we do this, we should tell people about Big Charity. All right, so Big Charity, it was, I was going to say is, was a large hospital in New Orleans. So it was founded on May 10th, 1736. Old as the hills. So it was by a grant from Jean-Louis, a French sailor and shipbuilder who died in New Orleans the year before. And his last will and testament was to finance a hospital for the indigent in the colony of New Orleans from his estate. Good guy. Hell of a guy. Yeah, right? And it went through many, many, many incarnations. And in the sixth incarnation in the 20th century, you had the building of big charity, this massive hospital downtown. So the city of New Orleans was rapidly expanding, and the demand for this indigent medical services even exceeded the charity hospital prior. So they needed to build something new. Big Huey P. Long and his, his predecessors helped establish this massive hospital. At the time, in 1939, it was the second largest hospital in the United States, with 2,680 beds. And it was connected with Louisiana State University Medical School that's in New Orleans, as well as Tulane. Did Tulane do any work there? Is it a separate institution? Uh, I'm not sure at the time they did, but I mean, they do now or did, and they probably did then as well. So you've got two major medical schools in New Orleans. And so you have this massive hospital that it's almost this like foreboding building. Like to look at it now, it's abandoned. Oh, it has this art deco reliefs everywhere that are beautiful, but now that they've like decayed and are molding and covered in just filth, they're disturbing. So where what happened to Big Charity? Oh well it was flooded out in Katrina. And they just never reopened it. Well it was in terrible shape beforehand. And they were able to get a huge amount of money from FEMA, et cetera, and VA, all this kind of stuff, to build a massive new hospital. Has that been completed yet? It has. It has. But at the time, it served one of the largest populations of uninsured citizens. You know, this became the leader in the charity hospital kind of system, which was built up around the country after. And it was one of the largest level one trauma centers just behind Cook County Hospital in Chicago. Right. The other place they needed one. If you go by Big Charity, or when we were there just a few years ago, you would still see lights on. Oh, there are definitely people living in there. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems so haunted. I mean, it just looks ghosty. Yeah, and so at the time, you did have that medical school attached to it. And the first recorded autopsy at Charity was in 1821, and 10 more a year later. And within 15 years, the first medical school was opened. 
and autopsies soon became common practice. So before this, it was like unheard of to disturb a body after death. Correct. Okay. And so then autopsy would be like looking for cause of death. Right. But then it quickly was used, but it was also used by medical students to learn. Okay. So then it became just dissection. True. Okay. And by 1859, at least 150 corpses were dissected in one medical season. What's a medical season? I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know the like 100-year-old terminology. I love it so much. I mean, I remember when you started residency, everyone called June the killing month. That's because it's true. <laughs> there are more medical errors and deaths in July when new residents start. So don't get sick in July. Good luck with that, guys. So at the time, professors and medical students just expected that they would have access to any patient that died. Just to, to cut up and to cut up and take apart and look at? Right, especially at charity. Because <laughs> they were uninsured, therefore property of the state? I don't know if it was exactly Not that. that literal, but okay. And a fun factoid was, I saw in 1851, med students were required to purchase at least one arm and two legs for dissection. You purchased it, it belonged to you. It was your arm. Your extra arm. So the facility, like I said, was a a major medical center. And it was considered a leader in medical experimentation and surgical procedures. Many of these were performed in African Americans. To perfect these procedures, you would also do them on cadavers, i.e. dead people. Okay, so they were taking possession of basically anybody that died in the hospital. They needed cadavers. Is this one of those instances where people are like, they're not going to take care of you because they want your body? Exactly. It's like people say now, like, oh, well, they're just going to let you die so they can... Harvest your organs. Harvest your organs. Yeah. It's exactly that idea. You're worth more dead than alive. Yeah. Unfortunately, that idea was very prevalent at the time. But the idea of using bodies for autopsy and for dissection has been around for longer than this. So the practice of human dissection as a learning tool for med students began in the early 14th century in Italy at the University of Bologna. 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 It's Bologna. And then this practice spread because there is no better way to learn about the human body than to completely dismantle it. You've done this. No, it's, it's true. Of course, I did it in an ethical manner. As, as far a, as you know. As far as I know. <laughs> You the look of horror that just came over your Don't face. say things like that. I'm a mean lady. I'm a mean, mean lady. So that need for bodies became a huge problem. Right, because there are a lot of people entering the medical field. We want them to be properly trained. There are rules going into place and laws being passed that require people to have some sort of training. Right, so in 1752, the common law provisions for the dissection of murderers in England was made statutory law by George II for the reason that the crime of murder has been more frequently perpetrated than formerly, and it has thereby become necessary that some further terror and peculiar infamy to be added to the punishment of death. At the time, according to English law, it was a crime to steal one's coffin, but not one's body. Right. Okay, so about the English murderers and needing further infamy to be added... This is not the first time that people have been like, 
there should be more. Death isn't enough. And the English were really big on drawing death out for a long time. I'm talking way back in the day. Way back. Like drawing corners. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it. Yeah. Many episodes. And they also used people's skin to bind books and things like that. Like there was definitely the idea that murderers deserved to have their bodies plundered. Right, so before 1832, dissection was a feared and hated punishment for murder. And in 1832, the Anatomy Act requisitioned instead the corpses of the poor, transferring the penalty from murder to poverty. Right, and you can see how that would work in the imagination of the populace. You can see how, like, this is something that happens to you when you commit the ultimate atrocity. And now, it can happen to anyone. And you have to think that there was enough of a public sentiment about it that it was perceived as a punishment. But even with these laws in place, and even with the ability to donate your body in lieu of paying for medical services, which was an option, you still had a big booming business starting. What was this business? Grave robbing. Oh. Also known as Resurrectionist. The Resurrectionist, which is the greatest name ever. Now, these were people who were specifically commissioned by various medical institutions to go into cemeteries and dig up freshly laid graves. Right, they would go and, in theory, get the body and make the grave look undisturbed. If they knew what they were doing. The best ones did. And the best ones made a lot of money. So in America, which is where we're kind of focusing this episode, there's a lot to talk about grave robbing. Right, and we're not going to go into Frankenstein, and we're not going to go into all of the weird ways that doctors were linked with murder in England and where they think the Jack the Ripper kidney came from. All of that we'll save for another day. But in America. America. The majority of the victims were the poor, the black, and the marginalized. Since the deterrence of grave robbing took time and money, those elements of society who were least economically and socially advantaged were the most vulnerable. So if you could not have patrols out higher guards, you were just prime pickings. And this was as big of a deal to people as, say, being buried alive. There were a lot of weird contraptions that were engineered, and people would have special take shifts watching graves for two weeks after people were buried, and there were tripwires and all sorts of things set up to keep the wealthier members of society safe after their death right and the targeting of the kind of poor black immigrant marginalized portion of society is an old tradition in america ah our traditions such a rich rich Mm. history Mm. so slave owners donated or sold the bodies of deceased slaves to medical schools because it was their property exactly oh my god and they could dispose of it as they pleased Uh, okay so southern slaves and cadavers were also shipped up north in barrels of whiskey to supply northern medical schools oh this is how i would try to escape if i were a slave but anyway so it was throughout the united states that these bodies were being used for anatomical study particularly the bodies of african-americans people didn't like the idea of this. It didn't sit well with people, especially because slavery was only taking part in half of the United States at the time. 
it kind of got wrapped up in bigger ideas. So in New York City, there was a, an event happening that came to be known. Sounds like a party. It was kind of a party as much as the Boston Tea Party was a party known as the Anatomy Riots. And it was one of the first major riots post-revolution, obviously, as I said, Boston Tea Party, etc. Those kind of count in America. And it happened on April 16th of 1788. It was also called the Doctor Riots. Party. Party. And as many as 20 people were killed. So definitely a party. Sounds like a great source of cadavers. Oh my God, you know they were dissected. (laughs) So medical schools were run differently at the time. Practices for gathering cadavers was less ethical, as we have discussed. Anatomical dissection was, still is, the central component of medical study. But most people thought it was very offensive and just wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong to do this. Uh, And so it's kind of done secretly. Not, I mean. That wasn't a secret. But it was not like on the pamphlets, on the like recruiting materials. (laughs) Actually it was. No. Yes. So they would often cite like, we have a great source of cadavers. Yippee! In the recruiting information. Because <clears throat> medical schools at the time were private, mm. mostly. And so you would have to, you know, they'd want to get paying students. But the general public, it was kind of not purposely kept hush-hush, but it wasn't exactly talked about. Not dinner party conversation. But leave it to the media. Newspaper stories about medical students robbing graves of potter's fields and Negro burial grounds hit the stands. And then shit hit the fan. In February, a group of the city's free and enslaved blacks submitted a petition to a common council complaining of young gentlemen in the city who call themselves students of the physic. I'm going to call myself student of the physic it's from now on. very, very mystical sounding. And who, under the cover of night, in the most wanton sallies of excess... Dig up bodies of our deceased friends and relatives, of your petitioners, carrying them away without respect for age or sex. The petitioners did not ask that the grave robbing be stopped, just that it be conducted in a more respectful manner. They were trying to, like, overshoot, I guess. It's, like, ridiculous. I I can see where they're coming from. It's like they didn't even think that they could stop that. They're like, can we just be nice about it? Maybe ask permission? Conducted with the decency and propriety which the solemnity of such occasion requires, is what they wanted. And let me guess, no one gave a shit. No one gave a shit. That's exactly right, as is the American way. It was ignored, again, the American way. We got on this early. And in February, uh, on February 21st of 1788, the advertiser printed an announcement saying that the body of a white woman had been stolen from Trinity Churchyard. Not a white woman. The horror We've dug up hundreds of black graves. But this lady, she was, her skin was not full of melanin and therefore we care. We care so much. Stories vary. As they want to do. As they want to do. There are several different versions about how the populace found out about the white lady. Some say a group of boys were playing near the New York hospital and saw something. Something ominous. Ominous, body parts, etc. Now, there's another version of the story that claims that they specifically saw a severed arm hanging out the window to dry. Of course. I buy that. That's possible. And then there's yet another version in which a boy peeked through a window and a surgeon waved a severed arm at him. 
I 100% buy that. I never do. <laughs> I could see that happening. I could see myself in that time period with the gallows humor that I have and without the moral ethical <laughs> changes that I've had from the last century or a few centuries of civilization. Definitely Bullshit, you do it now. You would do it now and you know it. If somebody walked into a lab where they were not supposed to be, you would totally turn around and wave an arm at them. I don't buy that for a second, that you were more evolved than to do that. And you'd come home and tell me and we would cackle and it would be terrible. Depends on how old the kid was. (laughs) (laughs) If it was like a a student, 100% would do that. (laughs) But there's one more version of the story in which the man who waved the arm at him tacked on the fact that it belonged to his recently deceased mother. Go and do that. <laughs> no, no, no. There, There's the line. We found it. We found the I no longer believe the storyline. Or I hope I don't. In Joel Tyler Headley's 1873 The Great Riots of New York, which sounds like a just page turner, the boy, how many riots did they had by 1873 is what's amazing. Lots of great ones. We're going to have a hit greatest hits by this time. More to come. <laughs> it's a good band. A boy ran off to tell the news, and his father, a mason, went to the cemetery and exhumed his wife's coffin. After finding it empty, he marched on the hospital with a group of angry worker friends, still carrying their picks and shovels. And what I love about this is the urgency that the undertaking um, had. Well, hell yeah. Like, the coffin's empty. You've got the tools in your hand. This is not a good situation to be in if you're a doctor. Like, they're accidentally armed and really pissed off. <laughs> I mean, if I was a mason and found my wife's grave empty, I'd be pretty pissed off, too. Just, like, I cannot work up the care about it. Like, I know you should. But I just, like, they're dead. It's because you're cold-hearted. I know, I know, I know. It happens. Colonel William Heth, writing a letter to the governor of Virginia, Edmund Randolph, described what happened when the man got to the hospital. The cry of barbarity and et cetera was soon spread. The young sons of Galen, Galen being like an allusion to the ancient Greek physician, fled in every direction. One took refuge in a chimney. The mob raised, and the hospital apartments were ransacked. In the anatomy room were found three fresh bodies, one boiling in a kettle and two others cutting up, with certain parts of the two sexes hanging in the most brutal position. The circumstances, together with the wanton and apparent inhuman complexion of the room, exasperated the mob beyond all bounds. The total destruction of every anatomy in the hospital. Yeah, so I get that. Like, if you do not know what you're walking into, and you would walk into an anatomy lab, like, today, you would be horrified. Oh, it's not like now where we're like, oh, we know this is going on in there. Like, nobody knows. Right? Not to any great degree. Right. They're not watching like, oh, all the medical dramas or whatever at home. You know, they don't even have that basis of knowledge. Some people remained to guard the school and the specimens, but the specimens were dragged out in the street and set on fire, which is so much more respectful than being dissected for the purposes of science. A sheriff and the mayor arrived and escorted the doctors to jail for their own protection, which is my favorite. I'd be like, take me. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Sorry for learning about how to take care of people when they're dying, folks. The next day, a mob of hundreds stormed Columbia. Despite Alexander Hamilton of Broadway fame pleading on the front steps for them not to. I'm sure the song was fantastic. I know. Ah, sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Prequel. They found no bodies. They'd been removed the night before because 
they were smart. <laughs> and they ran around town looking for doctors, medical students, etc. I guess to... Kill. Kill. <laughs> then, again, in classic American fashion, they tried to storm the jail. Militiamen called out. So they tried not to fire guns until John Jay... Future Supreme Court Justice. Nearly had his head bashed in with a rock. And the final death toll was around 20, as previously mentioned, not counting the cadavers. Because they opened fire. Yeah, that happens. It does. It happens when there's a riot. And heads are about to be bashed in, and people are storming a jail, and people are angry. That- We're not saying it's right. <laughs> We're it's saying it's happens. a riot. <laughs> in the days that followed, local newspapers stopped running their ads for doctors and medical classes. People regularly went to cemeteries to inspect graves of their loved ones and formed armed groups known as the Dead Guard Men. Wow. Metal. What a name. Um, to protect cemeteries. Several of the city's most prominent physicians published notices saying that they had never robbed a cemetery in the city, nor known anyone else to do so. The key there was in the city. <laughs> because the Negro burial ground and the Potter's Field were outside the city. So that's some of that clever wordification that our skilled, learned men are often known to use. Loophole. So there were at least 17 anatomy riots. 17. 17 anatomy riots between... 1765 and 1854 in New Haven, Baltimore, Cleveland, and Philadelphia. And so people began to pass what were known as bone bills. The following year, New York passed an act to prevent the odious practice of digging up and removing for the purposes of dissection dead bodies interred in cemeteries or burial places. And they provided the bodies of criminals executed for murder, but also arson and burglary. So we were like, everybody, if we think you're bad enough to kill you, you're bad enough to get learned on. Again, thinking that death was not enough. I don't know if they thought that. Or they're like, they're going to take bodies. Why don't we just give them these bodies? What the hell do we need these bodies for? These people are bad people. I don't know that there was the direction it ran in. So just like in Europe, the stream of bodies from the gallows to the medical school not enough. Well, we're going to need a war on drugs. No, I'm just kidding. What? Why? Because then we could like kill everybody and send the bodies, and that would be great. It's like, you know, how we have uh, for-profit prisons. Hmm. Sorry. <laughs> Did I get political? I'm sorry. That's not going to happen at all in the rest of the episode. Nah. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> so they continued to need bodies, and they continued to rob Graves. Let's be nice. Let's say procure specimens. Rob Graves. <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat this. What they were doing was terrible. Okay. Really? This is the terrible thing that's happening at the time? I guess I just look at this era and I'm like, everything sucked. No, like, it's not like because one thing was more terrible, this makes it less terrible. Okay, no, I have total relative morality. I'm a psychopath. So an interesting thing occurred in 1989. When in Augusta, Georgia. So they were renovating a 150-year-old building belonging to the Medical College of Georgia. Oh, my. And while they were renovating it, they found in the dirt basement... Can I guess? I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Bones. Layers and layers of bones Bones. and lime. Along with 19th century medical (sighs) tools and, of course, marks of dissection on the bones. Mm, 
It's just like a John Wayne Gacy playground up in there. They found 10,000 human bones and remnants. Yeah, like almost like John Wayne Gacy bad. Yeah, almost. So the Medical College of Georgia had their anatomy classes in this building from 1835 to 1913. And so they had grave robbers that brought bodies to the school. The bodies were preserved in whiskey in barrels. So before they died? No. Oh. No. No. That would be more fun. After. If you had to die. <laughs> if you had to die. Then. A terrible way. Yeah. So after they were put into barrels full of whiskey. Yeah, to preserve them. To preserve them. And I assume this was the same process used when they were shipped up north. Exactly. In the barrels of whiskey. So an interesting thing about this school was that they had a resurrectionist. Like head man in charge. His name was Grandson Harris. Is a great name. He was described as, quote, a large and powerful Gala slave. Ah. Uh. And he was bought in Charleston in 1852, and he was co-owned by the seven faculty members of the school. Seriously? Seriously. I didn't know you could go halvesies on a person. Apparently you could. I didn't, like, seriously, this is the first I've heard of it, and I've read a ton on the subject of slavery. But this is very interesting to me. I'm not read about people who worked in the public sphere. And he did. He had a very public persona. Now, he was technically like the janitor of the school. Yes. Because being a resurrectionist was not something you wanted to put on your W-2s? I don't think he had (laughs) W-2s. Okay. I guess he didn't pay taxes. So, at the time, in Georgia, it was illegal to rob graves for human dissection. But legal to own a person. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep coming back to this. Right. Mm. Relative morality. And then they're able to use that terribleness. Yeah. And say, well, you can't arrest him. Because he's technically not a human. So we got this in the bag. Right. In the barrel. So he was actually taught to read and write. Oh, that's also illegal. Very illegal. Just like grave robbing. You see, it's all the same. This was done so that he could monitor the funeral announcements in the paper. So you have Grandison, owned by seven people, who has been employed to carry out an illegal job of grave robbing. And they have, in turn, broken the law by teaching him to read in order to be able to pour over the obits with his morning coffee so that he can go out in the night and do this illegal thing for them. Exactly. So they're geniuses. Yeah, they're terrible. They're terrible, but thank you for teaching him to read. Well, so he mostly worked in the Cedar Grove Cemetery, which was where all the poor blacks were buried. Okay. And his routine at Cedar Grove, he would enter late at night, and he would dig down to the upper end of the fresh grave. He would smash the surface of the coffin with an axe, reach in, haul the body out, toss it in a sack, in the waiting wagon, and then cover up his work. So he also had a great memory. He was a really intelligent guy. And he could kind of have this photographic memory of what the grave looked like so that he could go and make it look exactly like it did beforehand. So were he born into different circumstances, he would have been like a Supreme Court justice or something, or like the best detective on the planet. Or a doctor. Or a doctor, true. Because he actually became a de facto teaching assistant. He learned a lot about anatomy, Mm -hmm. and he would help the medical students with their dissections and think about how specialized that knowledge was at the time like how few people had access to it that's kind of amazing like like just really pause for a second and think about that 
only like maybe like four percent of the population has access to that kind of specialized knowledge. Less than that. And here's this guy who's not even supposed to know how to write his name, who not only has access to it, but is so familiar with it and so knowledgeable about it that he is able to instruct this top tier of academic medical men. It's amazing. No, it is amazing. I and mean, he was a really intelligent guy. And But, you know, some people liked him. But, of course, he was still seen as that, you know, he's still the slave. Mm-hmm. And so they would still, you know, of course, not exactly treat him nicely. You know, I don't want to, like, sugarcoat this. But at one time, the school's former dean, Dr. Eugene Murphy, says that on a nighttime run, Harris went from the graveyard to a saloon for a drink. Two students who had been watching Harris walked over to his wagon pulled a corpse from a sack. One of the students climbed in the sack himself, and when Harris returned, the student moaned, Grandison, Grandison, I'm cold. Buy me a drink. To which he reported the reply, You could buy your own damn drink. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to say, I don't know that that has anything to do with the power dynamic between white and black so much as it has to do with bored ass medical students having somebody to fuck with. <laughs> I don't know that that is an example of how he was treated poorly. So after the Civil War, he you know was free, of course. Right. And he moved to Hamburg, South Carolina and became a reconstruction judge. Ah. Well, that seems more fitting for him than driving a cart under the cover of darkness and digging up bodies. I mean, he's smart. Right, he was a smart guy. He could read, he could write. You know, he also had this secure job and he, you know, wore proper gentleman's clothing. So he was a very liminal guy. He kind of walked that line between the two worlds. Yeah. And he like I said, he was in the public sphere, which is so interesting. And so after reconstruction failed yeah. initially, he did go back to the college and worked full time. As a janitor okay right right janitor not a professor i'm sorry i had a hope oh silly me get rid of those now folks purge them just the rest of the episode let me just go ahead and say take all of your hopes just just put them in a little box save them for later we'll give you a kitten and a pat on the head if you make it to the end so like i said he was this liminal guy he was between the white world and the black world he actually even was a member of the influential Colored Knights of Pythias, which was like this Masonic secret society that was started in 1880 and borrowed rituals of the White Knights of Pythias order. So he became this very powerful guy. He was feared by everyone in a way, you know, like they would still say hi to him and things. But as he walked by, you'd be like, wonder whose body is going to dig up tonight. I mean, he's Machiavellian. Well, and so at one time, they actually started to have a riot about this because the black community, you know, was starting to get you know mad and now could, had kind of a little bit of a power to say something about it. Right. Now Not just like, hey, can we be nice about can it? We please, like, do it in a nice way. They're like, this is screwed up. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? No one knows how the riots were quelled. I think Grandison was just like, shh. <laughs> I mean, it's possible he did have a hand in it. I mean, it's possible that law enforcement came out. No one really knows. Uh, but they were. And he was eventually retired. His son took over his job. As a janitor. 
a janitor. And Are we putting that in air quotes? Does oh, it mean yeah. resurrection? Do you not hear me say janitor? <laughs> and he I was, thought you were like highlighting the fall from from judge to janitor oh, no. earlier. He was no, like, a janitor. But he was actually a resurrectionist. Yes. Okay. And he was even given a pension when he retired. Grandison was. Yes. In Georgia. Yeah. And yeah. he even returned to give lectures to the medical students on grave robbing. Like how to? Yeah, the finer points. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, South. And of course. Oh, South. And he died in 1911 and was buried in Cedar Grove Cemetery. Was he? He was buried there. How has no one dug it up? All of the records for who's buried there were lost in a flood. Okay. So they don't know where he would be So buried. they can't like go check. Yeah. Exactly. Because I would be going check. Because I would assume that his son would be like, dad doesn't care. I'm going to dig him up. So if that story intrigues you, I highly encourage you to check out um, a fictionalized take on the story by Matthew Gwynn called The Resurrectionist. It's excellent. So pause. Go read it. Take a shower. It was good, right? Right. Okay. Let's go on. (laughs) You know, back to our original story, The Needle Man. You know, this is a story that is very much centered in New Orleans. Although you do have a few occurrences of the tale in other places. Where these men, these medical students hunting for bodies were known as, in other parts of the country, were night doctors. That's catchy. Again, metal, metal. Or at least, like, emo. (laughs) I'm going to start a band. We're all going to be doctors. No, I will not go. I will not go see you. (laughs) You have to. No, I'm not. So, in 1896, an issue of the Journal of American Folklore stated on dark nights this is a quote so we're gonna be quoting things we're gonna say words that we would not normally use this is just like if you're reading tom sawyer or huck finn or huck what, finn huck, the one. Yeah, huck finn you know you don't want to ban these books because of these words because these words give weight to the information it really allows you to get more of an idea of the cultural attitudes of the time and you want to portray that accurately and respectfully and as we were preparing for this episode we took a really long time because we've had a lot of positive commentary on the way that we deal with sexuality and gender and we appreciate it oh my god it means so much to me when people when people notice that we can be thoughtful and sensitive about touchy topics and race as somebody who's grown up in the south is scary to talk about it really is and we wanted to handle this with so much care and like we wanted to make sure that we did not come across as people who were like, the South's going to rise again, y'all. Like that was our biggest fear going into this. So forgive us. We're asking that in advance. Just forgive us for all of the things we're going to quote because they're going to be terrible. And that's the point. It's important to know your history or the ghosts will come back to haunt you. So in this journal, of American folklore from 1896. It says, On dark nights, Negroes in cities consider it dangerous to walk alone on the streets because the night doctor is abroad. He does not hesitate to choke colored people to death in order to obtain their bodies for dissection. The genesis of this belief from the well-known practice of grave robbing for medical colleges, several of which are located in southern cities, is sufficiently evident. So, and to go just a little further back, you know, we talked about 
how slaves were very quickly sold for this purpose. And so there were ads placed in papers, such as this one in Charleston, this is pre-Civil War, um, in the Charleston Mercury, this is by Dr. T. Stillman, and he said, To planters and others, wanted, 50 Negroes. Any person having sick Negroes, considered incurable by their respective physicians, and wishing to dispose of them, Dr. S. will pay cash. No! Oh my god, no. 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 I didn't, I didn't know that. Hadn't seen that. Like, to me, I'm like, it's real. Like, when you read that. Why would he want people who are still alive but sick and dispose of them? Right, right. Think about that for a second. So it's not hard to see why a fear of something like night doctors is around. Also, if you top that, I quit. And Atlanta proprietors, you know, tried to portray cities and these urban areas post-Civil War as a dangerous place where they could be kidnapped and murdered by night doctors. So this was not something that was only the black community was spreading. People were trying to enforce this idea. Right. Trying to enforce this fear. They were perpetuating the stories in order to make sure that people had an adequate fear to stay in line. I can't imagine. The stories and ideas behind the night doctors change depending on where you are in the country. Like geographically or Yeah, geographically. So in Virginia, night doctors wore white gowns, sometimes hoods. But it's important to point out that in that area, the Klan wore black. Okay, so, so even though it's kind of a clanny look, they're not the clan in that area. But in other areas... Sure, they're the clan. They still were. Okay. So there's without a doubt a connection between clan activities, we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan, and night doctors. Okay. And in some places they were even called Ku Klux doctors. That's terrifying. They hate everyone <laughs> and want your body. You know, of course, they would suddenly and dramatically appear dressed in this ghostly garb at black assembly places and other places, you know, as you were like walking out and try to snatch you. So Washington, D.C. was another place where the legend really flourished okay. because that was one of the essential points where the northern migration led to. OK, so they were like, don't go there. Oh, no, you don't want to go there where you can be free because you're totally going to get thrown in a bag and taken to medical school. And then it's the barrel of whiskey for you and not in a good way. Exactly. And so there were all these migrants from the South. And then you have lots of hospitals and doctors and medical students, including Howard University Medical School, which was there. Being that you had people from all over the South, all of these ideas got combined and switched around and really grew. It's a real nexus for the tale. Yeah, it really is. And so they would follow you home from a meeting. They would grab you while you were alone. They would also look for deformed people. To quote, there were a group of people that came around looking for unusual born people, like ill-deformed. Like if you were afflicted of any kind, they would come in and hit you with a needle. They could also throw the needles like darts. It's an interesting mental image. I just think my great-grandmother was like I knew her when I was very young and one of the things she always said that like amused the hell out of me and even does to this day was like when somebody was had any kind of birth defect any sort of disability anything she'd be like oh honey they're good people you be kind to those illy formed people illy formed oh that's so sweet 
So they would also set traps and they would use things like manholes and cellar doors to pull people in. They would gag you, put a sheet over you, put a hood over your head, use chloroform. And once you were got, nobody could hear you scream. Why not? Just part of the legend. Oh. So it- oh, I'm sure you could pull some serious psychology out of that idea. And one interesting thing was that they would drive a wagon that was like an undertaker, closed on all sides, and it would have rubber tires, and the horses would have rubber shoes, so that they were completely silent. We'll see that again. And like I said, these ideas, these ideas were perpetuated. They were perpetuated by the planter class, by the upper white class that needed them to stay in line, as you said. For one quote from the Times says, In later years, my father say that you mustn't go out to visit people in other cottages because the night doctor would get you and dissect your body, cut you up to see how you're made. And they believe that too. Well, all that was originated from whites. It's William H. Henderson. So that old themes of impending danger. Yeah, I read another story where a guy like crossed like three miles to go see a girl. He was courting. He was a courting? He was a courting, like Froggy. I'll sing that song for you one day. That when he got there, the girl's daddy was like, boy, you must sure be in love. Walk three miles by yourself at night. It's the only thing. <laughs> it was played on a lot of ideas. Of course, it played on the fears of the new urban environment. This Hospitals. Hospitals were not something anyone had been to before. The idea of medical students and hospitals and medicine and science in general were completely foreign. Right, and the healing practices in the South were so central to the black community. Like, there was such a system in place, and it was something that they were kind of always entitled to. Like, that was never, nobody ever stepped in. There weren't, like, white doctors coming to see about them. Like, that was something that was left to them, and... Yeah, the only time that happens if you had, like, a serious injury... And, like, it affected your value, basically. Right. And that's when someone would pay for a doctor, you know, a white doctor to come and set your leg. Yeah. If you couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, but, like, toothaches and general maladies, like, that was stuff that was handled internally by their own community. And so you have to think about trusting the people who have really kind of fucked you over in every way possible. Excuse my language. Oh, no. No excuse needed. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, there's that fear of science, there's fear of the unknown, there's fear of the near, new urban environment. You know, there's that fear of being abducted, of your body being taken against your will and used in a way that you do not consent to. Yeah. Sound familiar? <laughs> Maybe just a few years prior. And so, oh, there's that. Oh, we were going slavery. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I went way the other way. And there's without a doubt the element of the you know white planter class upper class trying to instill fear and almost a paranormal fear of the night doctors in the rural black now freed class of people to get them to stay so they wouldn't lose their cheap workforce right because okay remember all of us, let's go back to our high school history classes or maybe middle school. And remember that, yes, slaves were freed with the Emancipation Proclamation. That definitely happened. Good job. But remember sharecropping. Think about what that is. Think about how cost effective that was. 
think about feudalism as explored in Reconstruction. And whites definitely wanted to keep people on their land working as sharecroppers for free, etc. Virtually. Virtually. Because they were not going to be able to replace them. So when they were like, hey, this sucks. We're going to go up north where they know that we're human. That's... That's debated. <laughs> where legend tells that they know that we're human. Exactly. We're going to go up north and get some factory jobs. Peace. Yeah, they were like 5% more human. <laughs> so we don't want people leaving. But this doesn't start with the idea of people leaving. This is sort of a... Control issue. It's a control issue. So we have these sort of otherworldly boogeymen coming out and kidnapping folks to take them to medical schools to be dissected. But the idea that people might use the paranormal, use fear in order to control a population that they wanted to maintain control over, is not a new idea. Not at all. So I have a quote from Darwin Smith. One of the best controls that they had to keep slaves from straying away and having gatherings would be to scare the devil out of him. Scare him with ghost stories or tell him what they saw and actually get out in white when they knew they were going to have a meeting or something. So in the past, the idea of a bunch of slaves getting together and hanging out, fraternizing, having any kind of joy was perceived as dangerous. And in this, you see that most slaveholders knew that what they were doing was inherently wrong and objectionable and that those people did not want to be there. It was thought if they get together, they're going to talk about how fucked up this shit is and there's no way we're going to be able to keep them under our thumbs or boot heels or whatever. And this had some weight because there had been several uprisings. Like Nat Turner. There's a lot of talk in academic circles that there may have been more than were noted. Because it's not exactly the kind of thing you want to write about in the newspaper. If you're a white planner who wants to keep everybody in line and keep appearances up and say they really don't mind being here. Some even like it. Hmm, you're so happy. So this was originally practiced during slavery by masters and overseers who would dress as ghosts. Psychological control was later extended to the system of mounted patrols or patter rollers designed to monitor slave movement in the antebellum days. Patter rollers? Where are they getting these names from? I think it's patrollers, but just with a southern accent. <laughs> is my guess. Probably. Not anything against a southern accent, because I don't know if y'all have noticed, <laughs> but I suffer from a little bit of a condition myself. <laughs> Do the patter rollers, or the patrollers, does it sound like it when I say it? A little more than if I said patter roller. Patrollers <laughs> were charged with keeping track of slaves at night and making sure they didn't go off willy-nilly all here and yon, actual job description. You have these people who would dress up in white sheets on horseback and go out to the cabins where the slaves were and ride around and try to make them afraid to come out of their cabins and leave. Why do they think this would work? Because because among the white landholding slaveholding class there was a giant belief that slaves were very gullible and superstitious and that their belief in ghost was an all-powerful ever-present force that should be commandeered and manipulated to the advantage of the party of power of course right and this there is some evidence that there was a lot of well-articulated lore about 
ghosts and spirits and that sort of thing within slave culture. But as a Southerner, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that that is pervasive throughout the South. It's not just this one tiny little offshoot, especially in Louisiana, especially where we're from. We live with death all around us all the time. We don't shield our kids from it. We talk about it all the time. We just, we do ghost. Right. I mean, it's why Southern Gothic exists. Right. So there are a lot of really interesting beliefs that I'm going to walk through with you. Some folk beliefs um, that were recorded in 1921 by Newbell Niles Puckett, a folklorist from the University of North Carolina, who went down to the South and recorded his findings about what the, quote, Southern Negro believed. So among those ideas, death is sometimes personified and depicted as a spirit with agency. In stories and songs, it's personified as a person who like literally walks around and goes door to door and has things to say and needs to be satisfied, etc. Sort of like the idea of Santa Muerta, but... I mean, the idea of the Grim Reaper. Right, yes. Or the Angel of Death. Right. It's but, something that is, is pervasive through all societies. Right, but it's more fun to point at people who are different than us and say, like, isn't it weird that they think that? It's so weird. I've never thought of that. Oh, wait. Except that for I have. So in some African nations, there is this pervasive idea that all death is the result of witchcraft. Like, people would live on indefinitely if there were not witchcraft and conjures and curses put upon them. And this is recorded, as I said, in 1926... But this is still something that folklorists and anthropologists discuss today. So this is not some like, oh, well, that's what they thought back then. But African-Americans generally accept the idea that there is a natural death. However, they do believe that witchcraft can cause death. And some deaths that are particularly weird, uh, unusual, or have like convulsions, hallucinations, etc. accompanying them are perceived as induced by witchcraft. Kind of like was pointed out with like voodoo. Mm-hmm. Yes. Another important feature of belief in the Southern African-American population at this time was that it was very important to die in ease. If a person dies hard, quote, it is a bad sign and he will return to haunt survivors. And so everyone goes to every pain and effort they can to make sure that the person who's dying leaves the world in a pleasant state and with that with as little struggle as possible interesting fun fact they also believe that people couldn't die on beds where there were feathers of wild fowl why i don't know but that's a european belief too huh interesting yeah so they would commonly switch out the mattresses i just thought that was very interesting makes me think of the um death crowns Oh, Appalachian death crowns. Oh, one day. So interestingly, one of the things that Puckett points out throughout his work is how the customs of the European planters were mixed with the African customs that the enslaved peoples brought to their regions of America. And so he notes that in black homes, this is in 1926, people would turn pictures and mirrors to face the wall and stop clocks at the time of death. Very Victorian idea. Very European idea. Very this is English. where the Victorians were. <laughs> right, right. Very, very English, very Victorian, very European. But he notes that it's interesting because his black respondents or informants would give different reasons for why this is done. And they stated that they believe that the glass will always show the face of the deceased 
or that ghosts will run you if you catch their reflection in a mirror, charge you, like, like come back. You? Yes. Oh no. Yes. I mean, the, the Victorians thought that you'd like see them over your shoulder, or their soul would be captured. I don't think they thought the soul would be captured. Is that they you would be haunted by their reflection over your shoulder if you didn't turn the glass? Okay, I have always heard that. I think that's southern. Okay. English ghosts were more proper than that. Silly. They're like, excuse me, they tap you on the shoulder. Beg excuse pardon. me, excuse me. Do you have any tea? You have any gray poupon? Um, In the south, it's like come freaking eat you. Yeah, that's how we do things. And clocks were stopped in the English tradition in order to show that this man or woman's time had passed. And it was just an illusion between time and death and time expiring. Symbolic. It was symbolic. But in African-American respondents, he found that people believed that the clock would never keep time properly again if it wasn't stopped at the moment of death. And other people said that the clock would chime 13, which was bad luck, which would scare the shit out of me if it actually happened. How would that happen? I Magic. You're right. Of course. And also, it's cited that if people die with their mouth and eyes open, their soul may go to hell or may remain a restless spirit. So because of this, they note that people would tie people's mouths closed, I guess, like, put the bandage around their head, like you always see in old cartoons, etc., and, like, press their eyes closed before they were ever dead, just to make sure this didn't happen. And wakes were very important. People would sit up with their dead. This was a common practice throughout the South, and throughout much of the country, really. And still is. <laughs> right. But it used to be done at people's homes. Correct. And these wakes were held because you didn't want to leave the body alone, didn't want the body to wake up. But there's the additional belief in the African-American community that haints are spirits. Haints are what everybody in New Orleans calls them. Still calls them. Still calls them. And he puts it in air quotes every time he talks about it. Won't bother you till the body has been buried. Because the person isn't really dead until then. It's a crazy idea to think that the soul is still in that body. And that's why you have to stay waiting, awake with them all night in your home. Right. Because they'd be very confused. This is in the case of everybody. But in the case of bad men, even burial is not going to fix it. Wicked spirits are destined to roam the earth forever. We've talked about that before in other episodes. Mm -hmm. Definitely a strong African tradition. Yes. But the most common view is that sort of regardless of a person's moral character, they generally hang out for three days around the house, checking on people, going by, see people, making sure everybody's okay. Then they go to the graveyard and hang out for like three days at the graveyard in case anybody needs to come by, ask them anything, check on them, whatever. And then they go on. So in Africa, there's a prevalent belief among West Coast tribes that a person who is not afforded a proper burial will come back as a vengeful spirit and haunt their family. And of course, those are the people, mostly, that came over to the U.S. Mostly. Came over. <laughs> I thought we weren't doing euphemisms. <laughs> We're not. Forcefully brought. So, there's an interesting tradition involving murder victims and their killers. There's a lot of lore and superstition surrounding the relationship between the body of someone who's been murdered and the person who killed them. So would they be, like, haunted? Could be, but there's more than that. They could also, they had agency to point out their killer even after death. Really? How would they do that? Like they would come and like, like point them out like as a ghost? Well, we've heard about that in our spectral evidence episode. Well, of course. I mean, besides that. But these were more physical manifestations. So if the body of a murder victim was 
buried facing downwards, the murderer would be chained to the area, not like on top of it, but like the general vicinity where they could be caught, I guess, until the body was turned over. Maybe rolling over in his grave has something to do with that. I just thought of it. I don't know. I didn't think of that either. And some people said he had to bury the men standing up. Like the dwarf killer guy. Yes, yes. Vampire. Yes. Or you could bury their liver separate from their body. Of course. And the murderer would be caught near where the liver was buried. Hmm. Soul in the liver? Egyptian, right? More than just Egyptian. Yeah. A lot of people thought that. I don't know why. Why liver, of all things? It's a big organ. True. Looks important. Has gravitas. It is important. (laughs) And the liver has gravitas. I'm using my liver right now. Me too. my Irish coffee. But there's also a belief that sort of mirrored an English belief that if a murderer touched the body of the deceased, blood would pour from the spot where he touched Blood? Blood. Blood. But in England, the theory was that blood would pour from the wounds that had been inflicted previously. So, like, whatever killed them, it would start bleeding again. Interesting. But this has been co-opted and expounded upon to the point where it is very rich indeed in the African-American tradition. They have the idea that even bleached bones, even very old bones, if handled by a murderer, will pour blood. Or... In some cases, respondents say that they will bend. So, yeah, so they have agency from their grave. Yes. So the idea of ghosts, the idea of ghosts and haints was extremely strong in this folklore tradition. It was. And I want to stress again that I really believe that this is all of the South. I don't think this is unique to the African-American community. Of course, they have a unique spin on it. But we are ghosty as all hell. But there were great measures undertaken by the living to make sure that they stayed out of the way of the dead. Because the dead could be nasty. They had nothing to lose. They could keep you in line. Yeah, they could. And Puckett states that there's an interesting contradiction because the ghost, which is considered to be all-powerful, is very easily fooled. Well, if you, ha- if you believe in something like ghosts, you have to believe that there's some way you can get around them. Oh, or else you drive yourself crazy. You would have no agency. Right. So one tradition I thought was so interesting was in the Sea Islands, so Caribbean islands, there's a belief that a mother will haunt her infant if the baby is not passed over her casket, and they'll keep the baby awake all the time. Great explanation for colic. <laughs> You're so morbid. Hello, pot. I'm Kettle. So in Virginia, they noted that after a death in the family, people would move the location of doorknobs. They'd also move, like, everything, right? Yes, yes. They'd repaint the house. They'd rearrange furniture. But that was it was practiced in different ways in different places. But it was thought that a person returning home would be like, this is not my house. This is not my beautiful wife. All the days go by. Oh, this is what the talking heads are talking yes. about. Yes. So glad we figured it out. So there's an idea that was common in people who practiced hoodoo or any kind of voodooism that you had to lay a spirit. Not like that. Put your eyebrows down. It's not what I was thinking. Okay. But You're you had sick. You had to put a spirit to rest. You had to get them to stay in the ground. And so they'd put bitter herbs and sometimes throw like the, the drinking cup that was used in ritual atop the grave to make sure that people stayed in it and didn't go off looking for trouble. 
And there was a common belief that people would come back looking for food. And there were ideas around the South that if you put coffee and like bread under the porch, they wouldn't come in the house and bother you. Oh, that's also a pervasive idea. You see it throughout the world of right. leaving food out for the dead. Right. There was an idea that people were attached to their personal belongings and that you shouldn't use things that belong to dead people, like clothes especially. Okay, very that's taboos. still around. Yeah, that is still very around. very taboo. I'm literally wearing my grandfather's jacket. <laughs> that idea is still around. And so Puckett, in all of his 1926 glory... Says, while the Southern Negro today is not professedly polytheistic, yet the intensity of his beliefs in devils and angels and secondary spirits of all kinds really gives him a sort of polytheistic Christianity. Jesus is an anthropomorphic spirit who might come riding along wider than a rainbow across his shoulder when a mule balks, a ghost is stopping him, and spirits rustle the tree leaves. So there's an idea that, like common everyday things, hey, we're going to Japan here. But, like, common every things that lack explanation can be explained by ghost. Right. And, I mean, you know, we've talked about this before. And this is something that all cultures are going to do before science. You have to explain these things. You have to explain these ideas of these things you, you can't understand. All right, science. Why is a mule balk? Ghosts. <laughs> okay, fine. Some things, science. <laughs> some things. Some things are still ghosty. There was also an idea that the ghost of an acquaintance or a person that you'd known in life was much more powerful and frightening to you than a ghost out there in the ether. Like if there was a particular story attached to them, which you still see this, this is definitely still true. If you can say like, Oh, that's the ghost of the girl who was tied to the radiator or whatever. It has more sticking power because they're more humanized. And the same is true in this tradition. One example that Puckett gives is if a shade is your former acquaintance, he will mention your name to his comrades and then break a stick to attract your attention. Thus, whenever you hear a stick break in a thicket at night, you may know that a ghost is trying to get your attention. I don't want to hear any sticks breaking in the night. No, we just have the freaking lobos. And then he goes on to say that people advise to never answer a strange voice in the night that calls your name. Because it's the spirit of a dead relative. And they're calling you. And it means death to answer them. Mm, like a banshee. Yeah, sort of. And one of my favorite quotes from the book. This is serious business. Would that my pen could give some small idea of the deadly seriousness and sincerity with which these personal happenings are related by rural Negroes. Many times I've found myself wondering whether, after all, these less cultured folk were not in touch with influences to which the whites are impervious. So great is the earnestness of the Negroes, whom I know to be trustworthy in other affairs, in picturing the chill horror of these nocturnal meetings. So he's kind of trying to say, I think, in his way, in his 1920s way, like, they really believe this. Like, this is an important folk idea. And I mean, to bring back things we've talked about in the past, it's like, these folk ideas are, are in the middle. They're in the middle of those things where it's like, I can say I don't believe it. But I believe it. And there was an idea that these haints could enforce kind of a morality code. He talks about how people would imagine that you could anger spirits by doing things you weren't supposed to do, etc. And he says that it seems to him that the idea of a vengeful spirit of a man that you kill or wrong haunting you is as much a preventative factor in keeping people in line and behaving appropriately as is the idea of capital punishment 
I mean, think about it. That's not some crazy concept. You know, in just Judeo, well, not really Judeo, in Christian morality, it's like you do good, say so you don't go to hell. So you don't get taken in by this supernatural power that will torture and punish you for eternity. All right, Catholic Bells. No, like, that's so Catholic. Oh, fire and brimstone, ma'am. Fire and brimstone. Oh, yeah, but once saved, always saved things like that, Baptist. They don't Unless get... you didn't really mean it. Right, but it's still like good works do nothing for you. But yeah, that's very Catholic and adorable, but <laughs> you have not yet tapped the monster that is the Protestant ideology about that stuff. So a very important feature of ghosts in African-American folklore is that they can actually cause harm. They are not like reflections or they're not residual. They're not just playing out the last moments of their life. They're intelligent. They can affect the living and they can hurt you. And that goes all the way back to African tradition. You know, there are a lot of stories about ghosts coming back and being vengeful if they've been wronged. A lot of the stories you see in scary stories to tell in the dark are based on these narratives clinkety clink and a bunch of that kind of stuff like the golden arm idea Mm -hmm. yeah that folktale is just pervasive as well also wait till martin comes which i love that one one way in which they describe ghosts is white shadows in the midst of a whirlwind which we'll see later and they appear to appall those who believe in them if a person has died an untimely death they leave a dangerous dissatisfied ghost so great is the fear of some Mississippi informants for a certain haunted tree where a man was hung that they will go five or six miles out of their way to avoid passing the spot. There's very much a tendency toward human ghosts. Even if they see them in inanimate objects or in animals or whatever, they are just human souls who have shifted into that form. Humans are the the energy. Humans are the driving force. Right, so I mean... The idea of ghost and the paranormal was very pervasive. I mean, pervasive throughout the South, as we mentioned, but especially in these communities. And it seems, as we've discussed, this was used to the advantage, at least they thought, of the white planter class within the antebellum South. So we mentioned the patter rollers previously. And these were the patrol systems at night that would be used for surveillance of slave movements. Now, of course, you couldn't have these large rural areas patrolled by mounted guards at all times. I mean, there's poor visibility. You would need a huge army of people. So they would use the fear of the supernatural as a form of control. They created this climate of collective insecurity. So they would mark places as haunted and appear as ghosts in certain areas to try to ward people off. So these would often be places where people could have some privacy or have meetings, such as like old plantation homes or the deep, deep dark part of the woods, which was haunted anyway. They're all haunted. I mean, it's true. <laughs> but it was like any place that might be convenient for you to go hide or any place that leads out of the South, those places are definitely full of ghosts and you should not go there ever it would be horrible you don't want to do that and now they wouldn't just of course scare people they would also whip them brand them torture them in front of other slaves but this was just not as successful or at least they felt it wasn't right it's amazing when you treat people 
horribly, they still want to get away from you. They still don't like you. (laughs) Weird. It's so weird. And so, you know, the idea of using the paranormal was used in so many different ways. You know, they definitely did not want the slaves to be fraternizing with the Native Americans. Oh, no. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, this is really important in the early New England colonies where they set up the Indian as that red devil. Right. And, you know, there were large maroon colonies, and the thought was that if people knew that they could go and, you know, create an alliance with the Native Americans, they would be running off like crazy. So we better not let them know that that is anything that's even remotely possible. Yes, they would tell stories of these just bizarre, painful deaths and torture at the hands of Indians. And of course, Indians were told stories about the black slaves too. And the idea really caught on to where some tribes would even say that, of course, they were created by a good spirit and the blacks by an evil spirit. And the black soldiers were used in the Indian wars and Indians were paid to catch runaway slaves. So there was a really strong divisive rhetoric yeah they were tr- i mean it wasn't even rhetoric i mean they established it right I mean, they were paying people to capture freed slaves or to capture runaway slaves the black slaves were used to go and hunt down the indians right so antagonistic relations were established and they tried to do this with other would-be allies to the disenfranchised southern slave do you mean yankees yankees I think this worked better on white people than black because my parents still think this stuff. <laughs> Wait, Yankees aren't evil? Yeah, no, they are. Oh, yeah. Totes. Totes, my course. With their silly candles and macaroni in his hat. So this was a little <laughs> less successful than the Indian efforts because unfortunately for them, the enslaved people on the plantation were aware that these were just more white people with which they were familiar. All too familiar. Yes. They were told that Yankees would use them like horses and fasten them to plows or use them to pull cannons. They were like, what can they do that we don't do already to them? (laughs) You're so right. I mean, we're already being absolutely atrocious. Don't tell them. What's left? Well, what was left were long horns protruding from their head. Well, that's true. Pooping from their mouth. Definitely true. And having big bug eyes like a cow. Also true. They said that when Atlanta was burned, the Yankees rounded up slaves and locked them in the buildings before they set them on fire. They were told that Yankees wanted to kidnap them to sell them into slavery in Cuba. Of course. Which was made out to be, you know, horrific, as it still is. They said abolitionists were trying to induce slaves to run away so that they could recapture them and sell them downriver. Now, this was told, like, in the Carolinas, Virginia, etc., where downriver was still a possibility. I don't think it worked as well in the Deep South. They were also told that they would be blinded and sent to work in a mine and sealed in it. Now, if you thought the Yankees were bad... Who's worse than the Yankee? The Canadians! Oh, my God, not the Canadians. Sorry. Sorry, Canadians. We know it's not true. Yankee stuff's true. This That's is, true. Yeah. The Canadians are nice. Whatever. They were told that Canadians would skin them for leather and use their hair to make wool coats. Oh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> again, they, like, what are we not doing? <laughs> we're, not, we're not wearing them. That's about it. <laughs> That's what we've got. They were also told that Canadians would eat young slaves. And again, that they would pluck out their eyes, seal them in a mine, and send them to work. 
was popular. It was Are popular. minors good without eyes? Like, you think you would need an eye. No. So, no, no. Some vision. No. You're not going through it. You're just putting the raw materials in the cart. How would you know what to put in the cart? All of it. No. Not all of it. Yeah. This is an old folktale. Hey, but just don't look at the logic. Just go. Just go. So when these atrocious forms of punishment and these stories about everybody but me being a devil, which, hey, we're still popular in the South, fail to make people happy to stay on the plantation and work for free and be owned, they decided to expand their repertoire of horror. Logically, if the natural world is not working for you, you go supernatural. What's worse than a, a horned Yankee or a skinning Canadian? <laughs> Ghost! Ghost! So overseers and masters could not be everywhere at once, but they did not want anyone to know that, so they invented Ghost and you know, sold the stories as best they could. Because Ghost could be at any place at any time. They could appear out of nowhere, you wouldn't see them coming, you wouldn't hear them coming, and they could just come and get you. And now if you look back at some of the folk traditions we've talked about, the idea is that ghosts can actually do harm, and that... They have real corporeal power in this world, even though they're kind of disembodied souls. So one reverend says, to, if you can get a man believing in ghosties and such, things that don't exist, then you'll know he's thinking small. So it wasn't just about creating this fear, this disembodied fear that could hang everywhere you didn't want people to go. It was the idea that if you could get them to believe it, you would know you had control. Yeah, it's a powerful form of mind control. Right. And of really it, manipulating people. Yes. And you see this idea played out in Virginia especially, where there are stories about ghosts chasing runaways home. And following this initial circulation of the stories, people got out in the garb that they had previously described to the enslaved people on the plantation and acted it out. It's like white sheets. Yes. In order to make sure that they knew it was real. And we're actually afraid of it because it seemed preposterous without proof. So, of course, these stories did catch on when you started having, like, the proof. And, like, for a second, like, I know it's really easy to dismiss the idea of somebody riding around in a sheet. Like, we were like, oh, yeah, that's a ghost costume, like a sheet with two holes cut out for eyes. Like, that's silly. But imagine that you're in the middle of nowhere. You're terrified of being caught at what you're doing. You're on edge. Your adrenaline's up already. And in the moonlight... From a distance. No other light. No context either. Like, you're not seeing this, like, lit up. You see this thing, this giant mass of a man on horseback in white, and the light catches it, and it looks horrifying and weird as shit. It's scary. Like, it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, they're so silly. They were afraid of being in sheets. But, God, I mean, I, I don't think that any of us can put that into a proper place in our imagination just right off the bat because it looks so different in movies. It's always illuminated differently and it's always very obvious that it's person. So this leads us to a group of men that really took these ideas to heart. So these men lived in Pulaski, Tennessee. They were six Confederate officers, now no longer Confederate officers. As there was no longer a Confederacy. Exactly. And they, as many Southerners had fought for the valiant lost cause. In the war of Yankee aggression. Of state rights. And so, as they said, they could not engage in professional or business pursuits. So they had a total lack of amusement and social diversion. Can you imagine what that must be like? Like, to have a way of life established 
And to suddenly find yourself without a means for continuing in this life that you'd worked so hard to establish and, you know, kind of feel like you were the under the control of others. It's crazy. It's a crazy idea. I would just think that would make you act so irrationally and, you know, resent so much. I can't imagine who else might have felt this way. <laughs> no one at all. So, I mean, to give some context, you know, this was right after the end of the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, a quarter of families owned slaves. Each were worth about $1,000 at the time. Holy cow. So that would equal about $13,000 now. And so they felt that they lost property. They lost their workforce. Not to mention the Confederate States owed the Union a $712 million in war debts. That's what you get when you try to secede. I'm talking to you, Texas. Stop it. So while Lincoln, remember him? Yeah, nice guy. Hell of a nice guy. He wanted a swift unification after the Civil War with malice toward none and charity for all, right? Hell of a nice guy. Pisces. But you know what happened to him. He saw a play. Didn't see the end. No. Damn it. And so his successor, Andrew Johnson, was a Southern Democrat. And maybe the worst president ever. Like, seriously, I know my presidents. This guy was a dick. I knew that when I was three. Like, that was what I'd say. I'd be like, he's the worst president. <laughs> like, that was my blurb about him. Well, he decided that he was going to reconstruct the South on his own without the help of Congress. So he started lots Mavericks. Of yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so he just started pardoning Confederate soldiers left and right. Willy-nilly. Pretty much all of the just soldiers were pardoned. If you were a higher-ranking soldier, you had to come to Washington, D.C. and be pardoned personally. But as long as you came and gave an oath... You were A-OK. You became a citizen of the United States and had rights of any male white citizen at the time... Meaning you, you could vote. Land. Super. So by doing this, like, if you can get to Washington, he's really ensuring that it's all the wealthiest people. Exactly. Oh, my God. Okay. And so since he did this, they were able to take control right away. Right again. This... Everyone that was in power before just got back in power. Oh, my God. This makes my head hurt. Okay. So they passed black codes that were similar to slave codes. Severely restricted the lives of the newly freed people. Um, they were required to like stay on plantations, could not hold meetings, could not go out at night, could not have visitors. So what's the difference? Nothing. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah, they played on New England's vagrancy laws. Cute. So they were able to, you know, pretty much arrest anybody for really any reason. It's <laughs> like, you're a vagrant. Well, they did that to women later, but that's a different story. They could even declare blacks unfit to raise their children and take them away and give them to white guardians. So I assume they would raise these children as their own and love them unconditionally. Oh, definitely. Yeah, or of put them to work in the kitchen. Yeah, put them to work. Okay. Just making sure we're all <laughs> on the same page. Now, the radical Republicans of the Senate and Congress were not too happy about this. Why would you be? How could you be? They passed the Civil Rights Act. Oh, Wait, I thought that didn't happen until the 60s. There are lots of theirs. There okay. Lots of civil rights acts. Okay. So the first one. First one. They passed it over Johnson's veto. <laughs> they were pissed. <laughs> that's, that's as real as shit gets in the Senate. Well, they also refused to seat any Southern 
congressman that had previously been in power. (laughs) And so this Civil Rights Act stated that any person born in the U.S. was a citizen, not Native Americans. Uh, Anyway. Oh, let's not talk about that. Please. That's a whole different set of episodes. But so there was an idea when these six men met in Pulaski, Tennessee, of the U.S. government coming and taking over the country, taking over their land and their area, and telling them what to do. How are they taking over the country? It is the country. That's so weird. Technically, it wasn't yet, actually. It was, the states were not readmitted to the Union until they ratified the 14th Amendment. So back to our six fine... Southern gentlemen. Southern gentlemen. Previous Confederate soldiers. Oh, Lord, I'm so tired of all these mint juleps and cigars. Whatever are we going to do in our white linen suits this fine Tuesday afternoon, boys? Well, they said, boys, there's a quote, boys, let us get up a club. This is literally like, fuck it. We don't have anything better to do. It literally is. So in May of 1866, they decided to form a fraternity similar to a Greek fraternity, Kuklos Adelphon, which was a large fraternity in Southern universities. So Kuklos, meaning circle. Okay. And they decided they wanted to make this sound more mysterious. Then Kuklos? How could you ever? Well, they called it the Kuklos clan. Oh, I like what they did there. Meaning... Circle, circle. Yeah, good job. So smart. Well, later, John Lester, one of the founders, said, There was a weird potency in the very name, Ku Klux Klan. The sound of it suggestive of bones rattling together. I also heard of a revolver being cocked. Nice. Is that hard? Hard K. They developed rules, vows of secrecy, secret rites and rituals, passwords, secret handshakes, Okay, so they're bored seven-year-olds. This is what they Basically. are. They are bored seven-year-olds. Got it. All right. And hazing rituals. Yes, They came up with fantastic titles for themselves, such as the Grand Cyclops, the Grand Magi, the Grand Turk, Nighthawks, and Lictors. And after this meeting, they raided a linen closet, put white sheets over their head, and rode through town on their horses, whooping and shrieking like ghosts. In a small town in Tennessee. Yes. So everybody was talking about this shit the next day. Exactly. And everyone was hearing it talked about. Mm, And you know what gossip does. (laughs) It blooms and grows and weirds and wanders. So they built on this mysteriousness that they started with. These ideas of the fear and the supernatural. They wanted the South to be like it was. They went to make the South great again. They wanted the South to rise again, like the fucking bumper stickers say? Okay. They built on this mysteriousness. They would publish notices in local papers calling for meetings of the local dand, signed by the great Cyclops. The publisher would say, would report that he found this note slipped under his door. One great notice said, titled, Ku Klux Klan, on last Wednesday night, precisely at the hour of midnight, while we were sitting in our office, conversing with several friends... Why were you heard, in your office at midnight? Anyway, go ahead. A secret meeting. We heard a tap at the door, and in response to our invitation to come in, one of the strangest and most mysterious-looking specimens of humanity ever seen by mortal man or woman opened the door and solemnly entered our sanctum. It occurred to us at once 
This must be the Grand Turk of the Ku Klux Klan. We laid hold of the shooting stick and at once placed ourselves in position of defense. Our visitor appeared about nine feet high with a most hideous face and wrapped in an elegant robe of black silk, which he kept closely folded about his person. He wore gloves the color of blood and carried a magic wand in his hand with which he awed us into submission to any demand he might make. In a deep, coarse voice, he inquired if we were the editor. In a weak, timid <laughs> voice, we said, Yes. <laughs> Batman voice. We tried to say no. Bat clan voice. <laughs> no, don't put the Batman in the clan. That ruins my life. <laughs> we tried to say no, but a wave of his wand compelled us to tell the truth. Whereupon the mysterious stranger placed his hand under his robe and handed us the communication given below, and without uttering another word, bowed himself out. So this was published in the Pulaski paper. Now it's important to point out, the editor of the Pulaski paper is the brother of one of the founding clansmen. And there's only one paper in town. Well, of course. Right. Okay. So... He's nine feet tall with blood-red gloves and a coarse voice and a magical wand that can compel you to... He's a superhero. Or a supervillain. Right. Something. But... It's a ghost. He's a ghost. He's magic. These dens grew. Most new members were former Confederate soldiers and at least three local doctors. Again, with the doctors being terrible people thing. We're coming to this a lot tonight. You want to sleep on the couch? You want to sleep on the couch. I didn't do it. So they would, they would have these these elaborate hazing rituals. So in their secret dens, there would be these like abandoned houses in the woods. That were Ho- definitely haunted. Definitely haunted. Hooded lictors would stand guard on the dark roads outside their den. When passers asked who they were, they would reply, A spirit from the other world. I was killed at Chickamauga. A civil war battle. Right. In Georgia. So these are Confederate dead. These are ghosts of the Confederate dead. Of course. Too soon, boy. Too soon. Well, they saw the power that this had, and they capitalized it. it. Yeah, they were like, "This is great." Lester, one of the founders, wrote later. In this way, the Klan gradually realized the most powerful device ever constructed for controlling the ignorant and superstitious were in their hands. That's only because this was before Fox News. It's the new boogeyman. They transformed them into boogeymen who could control the behavior of former slaves. They patrol country roads, chasing and whipping freed black people who dare to travel at night. They would do what the free thing let them do. Terrible. Like do what the government of the United States of America says that they were entitled to do as free people. Exactly. Oh, Okay. So they would storm into people's houses, claiming to be the ghosts of dead Confederate soldiers. They'd speak in eerie voices. They'd show off their supernatural powers. They'd be like, I haven't had a drink since Shiloh. And they would demand to be given water. And they would drink and drink and drink this unnatural amount because they had built this reservoir into their costume so it could look like they were drinking this supernatural amount of water. These are theater nerds with an anger problem. They would also, you know, wear stilts to make themselves look tall. No! 
They would wear the tall hats as well. They would sometimes say something like, I'm going to take my arm off and like act like they had, were pulling an arm off and it was like a skeleton, like an actual skeleton arm. That they um, had come by through ethical means. Oh, no sure. grave robbing no involved, grave robbing. obviously. Yeah. I mean. And sometimes when they would ride or when they'd go into houses, they would make themselves look headless and carry like a, a dummy head and have their costume to where it looked like it had no head. <laughs> so, you know, at the time, when you think of the clan, you think of that classic costume of the white robes and the conical hats. And now yes. there was some of that around. It they would wear. It looks. It, they would wear robes, you know, just sheets, and then they would wear some sort of mask. And they didn't always have the like conical hat, although some people did. But the costumes varied between dens. Sometimes they'd be black. Sometimes they'd be white. Sometimes they'd have blood red gloves. Mm. It was varied dramatically throughout the South. So there was no order form going around. No, there wasn't. Yeah, not yet. But they were reappropriating these ideas that the slaveholders had been using for years. And one former slave said, I think this is a great, it says, the reason we were scared was that they came in with their pistols and I was afraid they would shoot me. It was so much safer to go along with their tricks and be like, oh yeah, you're a ghost, <laughs> than to be like, you're lying, and it would just it would just escalate. It would just escalate the violence. So they allowed the clan to think they were buying it. Okay, whatever you say. You're a ghost, honey. Sure you are. You want some more water? Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, oh, oh an arm. Oh, you took your arm off. All right. Just don't shoot me. All right, I'm scared. Oh, I can't believe they did it again. I saw that trick last week. <laughs> guy's a terrible actor. Ooh, we got the good one tonight. He commits. <laughs> the writing reviews in like a underground publication. So as the Klan was brewing, you know, you had the Republicans pushing for a new kind of reconstruction of the South. And they developed something called the Freedmen's Bureau. And it was expanded by Congress over Johnson's veto to help with food and education and medical care of the newly freed black or people. Of course, the Southerners felt that this aided black people at expense of the white people. Second-class citizens. We've become second-class citizens, I tell you. I know. Especially the Southern landowners who'd be forced to pay higher taxes Just to take care of them sorry, sorry people. And a Pulaski citizen even said, It will curse the South with a population of idle and pauper freedmen. Did he just so say welfare familiar. queens? Did so he familiar? say it? Yeah, pretty much. He said welfare queens. Right? Oh my God. Okay. This is why you must know your history. Congress continued to pass further Reconstruction Acts that split the South into military districts. It also granted freed black men the right to vote in elections in the upcoming constitutional conventions because they were trying to pass the... The 14th Amendment. Right. Which would grant everyone citizenship. So you had the situation that really angered a lot of white Southerners because these free blacks were allowed to vote before they could because they weren't pardoned yet. Because they hadn't made their pilgrimage? Correct. Oh, and the the 
Republicans kind of put an end to that too. Oh, okay. So they were like, Johnson was just handing these pardons out all willy-nilly, and we are going to hand them out like when people deserve them. There's a great quote by W.E.B. Du Bois, and he summed up Reconstruction. And he was, FYI, civil rights leader at the time, a historian. Kind of a big deal. He was also black. (laughs) So he said, the slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. He had no idea how long that would be true. It's really sad to think about. The Cyclopedia of Fraternities from 1907, in discussing this Ku Klux Klan, states that beginning in April 1867, there was a gradual transformation. The members had conjured up a veritable Frankenstein. They had played with an engine of power and mystery. They organized on entirely innocent lines. <coughs> Bullshit. What we gonna do tonight? I'm all out of mint and my julep just don't tickle me like it used to. Let's go whip people. All right, boys, now you on to something. And they found themselves overcome by a belief that something must lie behind it all. That there was, after all, a serious purpose. A work for the clan to do. You know, this all started as fun and games, but I think that maybe we're on to something. Right, Grand Cyclops? <laughs> oh, I did want to mention that when you said earlier, like these mysterious strangers would ride up and blah, blah, blah. All I could think about was Mark Twain. He wrote The Mysterious Stranger. It's a book about the devil. It's very dark. But it's also that claymation. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And like there Don't Google it. No, do do it. Do it. It'll ruin you forever. Is what happened to me. But yeah, Mark Twain claymation ruined my life. That's another story. But the idea that they could be that kind of power and they kind of had that devilish, fiendish, otherworldliness and I don't know. There's something about it. I mean, like they said, it's like there was something to fear. It wasn't like, oh, no, ghosts. No, they would freaking come in and shoot your family. That's scary. They would whip you. They would pull you out at night. They would lynch you. So this fraternity, this great brotherhood of the Ku Klux Klan. We're all just good friends with some free time and lots of extra linens. We like fried chicken and states' rights. They also needed a strong leader. I believe that I was informed by a documentary I saw when I was a young girl about who this might be. Oh, really? What were you watching as a young girl? I was watching a documentary where there was a young man named Forrest, and he was named after General Nathan Bedford Forrest. And he said he started a club with some friends, and they all liked to go riding around in their bed sheets. It's pretty accurate. (laughs) So... Whenever you go to a dark place in this episode and you're like, humanity is awful and we are all going to destroy one another. Which is probably true. Yeah. And for the majority of this episode should be the pervasive feeling. Just remember Forrest saying, ride around in they bed sheets. Because it's probably the greatest description of the clan I've ever heard in my life. And now he wanted to really expand this fraternity. And he said, those whose intellects are weak, but whose prejudice and impulses are strong and who are apt to be carried along by those who know how to appeal to the latter. So Not Trump voters. Some, what? What? Nothing. Nothing. So wait, <laughs> what was his title within the organization? Well, he became the Grand Wizard. He is the only Grand Wizard that there's ever been. So they continued on with this like patriotic rhetoric. Like, the country was great. 
we just need to get back to that way. They believed. Oh in my that. God! They were gonna make the Confederacy great again. Like South great again. Okay. They just believed. Checking. You know, they were all about the Constitution. Oh, so they were patriots now. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. But of course, you know, it only applied to white patriots. Of course. Okay. And Christ Almighty. They expanded this idea of this kind of mysterious organization. They started to call themselves the Invisible Empire. That stuck. They did. They divided the South into, south into realms, dominions, and provinces. They gave themselves names like Grand Dragon, who had the Hydras under them, the Grand Titan, who had the Furies under them, the Grand Giant, and then all of the Goblins and Ghouls. Where were the Hobbits? So the South became Middle Earth with a severe hatred of black people, is what you're telling me. It's like the worst LARPing ever. Was there one ring to rule them all? Were there... No, one race to rule them all. Oh my God, you're so right. Oh, cruel. So how do we get rid of it? We can't just go throw throw it away at the end. It won't work. That's a great question. If it was just a ring instead of a race, we could probably manage it. It would just take lots of hours and tons of CGI. So, you know, they were pulling all these new people in. They were not just getting those upper class planted people. They were trying to pull everyone in. They were building up, become a little army. Even Billy Joe? Yeah. Billy Joe's going to come be in the clan now? All right. Because, as he said, they could be carried along by those who knew how to appeal. Oh. To the prejudice and impulses that they had. You mean I'm better than somebody? Well, of course. I'm better than somebody? Hell well, yeah. There well, there was a fear. There was a fear that the lower class white people would team up with the new freed black slaves and try to make some, dare I say, social progress. No! We will not have that in the South. You get back in there, boy. (laughs) I done told you. I'm sorry, I'm going full Southern. I can't help it. But as they grew, they held rallies and parades to show their strength and, of course, intimidate freed people. Mm. No, no, not for that purpose. It's just a, you know, side effect. Yeah. One man said, it was thought that the mystery connected with the organization would produce more terror, and by that, riding at night and appearing to be a sort of miraculous person, spirits and ghosts and things of that kind, it would have a good effect. A good, good, good effect. I think they meant like an effective. <laughs> it would be effective. Okay. But papers continued to build that story. The New York World reported, Whenever a petty tyrant or a great one presses the people, there the Ku Klux Klan rears its head. The idea put forth is that the dead Confederates rise at midnight and forming into pale brigades, ride forth to redress the wrongs inflicted on those for whom he died. Oh. And so they would often publish these different things in the papers and around town called coffin notices. <gasps> there were these kind of nonsensical threats, but you would these would appear, people would be like, what the hell is this about? And then the next day someone would be, you know, rode down and whipped. Right, and that progressed over time to where it was very specifically like on the home or vehicle or whatever of somebody who they were singling out for punishment. 
under their authority. I'm literally doing air quotes like you can see them. I'm sorry, guys. Air quotes. Right. And so the night Riders that would do this would be in these huge parties. They would outnumber anyone they were going after. You know, like we said, they would act theatrically. They would threaten to eat and cook people. They would talk in crazy Like Canadians? Voices. Yes. And they kept everything really tightly knit. They did not, you know, they would threaten to kill any kind of informers. They would force people to join the clan. They didn't want to, either by threatening them that they would hurt themselves or their family or force them to, like, pay a fine to stay out of it. But it would be, like, you know, something you couldn't pay. You know, they'd go get this, like, poor farmer and be like, give me 50 bucks. And he'd be like. Which would be, like, how much he's going to live off of for the whole year. Son, I got 17 kids in these shoes. I am not paying you $50. Oh, they didn't have shoes. <laughs> so these Ku Klux Klan men were convinced that black people were gullible and would literally believe anything that these ghosts were coming after them. They were extremely superstitious and had fantastic beliefs in the supernatural interwoven into their lives, folklore, and religion. But of course, they completely discounted the idea that these people were terrified of living armed men capable of making black people ghosts before their time. So by 1868, the Klan had spread into every state in the former Confederacy. I mean, there's a lot of people with idle time, you know what I'm saying? Forrest later claimed that nearly half of the men in the South were members of the KKK. I mean, it seems like a fair estimation if you only counting three-fifths of blacks. I don't think he was counting any blacks as citizens. So the historian foreigner says, The Klan was a military force serving the interests of the Democratic Party, the planter class, and all those who desired restoration of white supremacy. Its purposes were political, but political in the broadest sense, for it sought to affect power relations throughout Southern society. It aimed to reverse the interlocking changes sweeping over the South during Reconstruction, to destroy the Republican Party's infrastructure, undermine the Reconstruction state, reestablish control of the black labor force, and restore racial subordination in every aspect of the Southern life. All right, so call me Rhett. I need to talk to you about a couple of things that went on during Reconstruction that we had a real problem with as KKK members. Are you a ghost of a... I'm a ghost. God damn it, I'm a ghost. You want some water? I'm good. I have one. Jesus, stop by. All right. We're buds. So, one, my first major problem with Reconstruction is carpetbaggers. Right. They hated carpetbaggers. Carpetbaggers are Yankees with horns who shit out their mouths and have bug eyes like cows and come to the South and try to tell us how to conduct our affairs. Right, so those were like members of the Freedmen's Bureau, which we talked about. And they would come in. They were trying to help with education. They were trying to set up public schools, which, I mean, that would be terrible. (laughs) We don't want people reading. They might get these uppity ideas. Uppity, uppity, uppity. It's a very key word in the South at this time. It means exactly what you think. It means anybody who pretends to be as good as I am. But these Freedmen's Bureau agents also were able to report back to the North about what was going on. Spies. <laughs> they kind of were. <laughs> they said that generally it can be reported that North and South Carolina in 18 months, ending in June 1867, 
There were 197 murders and 548 cases of aggravated assault towards freed black men. I have to go on and tell you that another thing that is really bothering us Confederate dead is the scalawags. A scalawag? A scalawag. Now see, back in the day when we were fighting and actually living and breathing and drinking our mint juleps instead of doing it, you know, uh, vicariously through these young men who needed something to do with their time, we would call a man who ran away from his civil duties in the Confederate Army a scalawag. It was the term for a deserter. And after the Civil War, we began to apply the term to Southerners who took up with Northerners and were tolerant and supportive of carpetbagger Yankee bullshit scum. That's terrible. Scalawags. Glencher Ghost. <laughs> Are you going to exercise me, young man? You have a Baltimore accent. I'm liable to kick your ass, you <laughs> Maryland piece of shit. Someone said we had thick Baltimore accents. <laughs> you obviously have not listened to more than one episode. <laughs> so another problem that you probably had, uh, Confederate ghost. Rit, my name is Rit. All right. Um, was that they were trying to get people to vote. I cannot believe they would trample the wishes of our forefathers as they set forth upon this continent to have only white men with land and means vote and be citizens. If they let black men vote, the next thing you know, women are going to be trying to get up there and go to the polls, and soon it'll just be everybody all willy-nilly and all whatnot. Give me... Top off my mint julep. This is getting real, real serious. I think you had a few too many of those. I couldn't have enough, son. Do you know what they did to my beautiful confederacy? I don't know. I kind of like it right now. There were magnolias everywhere. There still are. There was... I had money. Oh, okay. (laughs) And cotton and free labor. You know, so they were trying to fight the vote. They did not want people voting. They were, of course, doing some of the things you've heard about poll taxes. They were using intimidation, threats of violence. They were even handing out, like, fake voter cards. All right, so I'm banishing Rat. He's annoying me. So fake voter cards to people they did not actually want making it to the polls. I think that's what happened to us this year. Well, no, so they would hand it to, they would hand the freed black man cards and on the top back in the day they were colored and on the and on it would say what was colored the paper oh and it would say it would say like republican or democrat on the top of the card and they would print out ones that were the wrong color oh but still said the right thing right and so they would vote for the southern democrats instead of voting for the republicans they wanted to vote for how edgar Allan poe died it's bullshit that's another episode so in Louisiana, during the presidential election of November 1868, more than 2,000 persons were killed, wounded, and otherwise within a few-week period. Why? For what? So they couldn't vote. Oh my god! No, that's terrible. This is voter shit? This is people just trying to keep people away from the polls. Voter intimidation and or death. This is the ultimate voter intimidation. And so in St. Landry Parish which had a registered rep- 
Republican majority of 1,071 people after the murders, no Republicans voted in the fall election. None? No one voted for Grant. Not one. (laughs) Well, they're effective. So as the group, the Ku Klux Klan, expanded, it started to get press. Really, this is the time where having a little too much press about your secret organization is not necessarily a good thing. They were eventually deemed a terrorist organization Mm. by the federal government. They passed the Enforcement Acts in 1870 and 1871, intended to prosecute and suppress Klan crimes. There were criminal codes which protected African Americans' right to vote, to hold office, and to serve on juries and receive equal protection of laws. Passed under the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, the laws also allowed the federal government to intervene when states did not act to protect these rights. So they had hundreds of indictments. It was, in a way, a success in terms of restoring order, reinvigorating the morale of the Southern Republicans, and enabling blacks to exercise their rights as citizens. Now, of course, this is not like some magic switch wand like our Grand Cyclops had earlier. Is your Turk. He was Turk. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Did not mean to offend. Sorry. Sorry. I now kind of feel better that Grant's on money. So in a way, while the Klan never fully disappears, this is the end of the Reconstruction Era massive Ku Klux Klan. Oh my God. I'm so relieved that we put that behind us. I mean, what a dark, terrible chapter in American history. It's it's a relief to know that the Klan went off and slumbered and, you know, was no more. For a hot second. Yeah, that's exactly how long it was. I'm looking and I'm checking and yes, it was for a hot, no, hot minute, hot minute. I don't even know if it was a whole minute. <laughs> because this movie came out in 1915. Now, Jacob, be fair. It wasn't a movie. Is a film. Ah, a film. And actually, like, a lot of people who talk about it actually say, like, oh my god, it was incredibly innovative filmmaking. From a production standpoint. Everything in it is a lie, and not in, like, a theatrical sense. But anyway, so, the movie is called Birth of a Nation. Which nation? It's really not clear. Is a movie made by D.W. Griffith, and this is at the time where you were going to see, like, one reelers, you know, this little shorts. Like, this is the day of Fatty Arbuckle kind of comedy. And so the idea that a movie could last, like, two hours and have a narrative that, you know, continued longer than a rerun of Seinfeld was really quite a departure from standard operating procedure. So D.W. Griffith decides that it is his patriotic charge to produce and direct Birth of a Nation, which is based on Thomas Dixon's 1905 novel. The Klansman. The Klansman. I think he, he smart move publicity-wise, change that name. I'm going to agree. going to agree with you right there. Maybe you just should have changed the entire story. If we could make it American instead of Confederate, it might be, you know, more unifying. Dixon was a Southern supporter, and he wrote this very romantic account of how the Klan saved the South. Well, of course. We just talked about how saviors they were. Mm-hmm. 
So it was full of lynchings and beatings and throwing bodies in the water? No, it was full of romance and grandeur. Oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. So they really honed in on the idea of protecting the virtues of womanhood, pure womanhood. Pure white womanhood. Yeah, well, I think those two words are very synonymous in 1915, and even more so in 1905 when the book was written. So I mean, people went see this movie? Oh, yeah. Uh, Woodrow Wilson. Are you familiar with Woodrow Wilson? A failed president. No, he wasn't so bad. Okay. Except for this. Screened it at the White House. It was reported that his comment on said motion picture was, my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. He really say that? No. Of course not. Well, he denies saying it, but a reporter says he said it. Whatever. You know how that goes. So, around the time of this movie's release... Rebranding. <laughs> rebranding very much does occur, and somebody understands the concept of synergy. This is a fine Southern gentleman. This is going to be the finest of all fine Southern gentlemen's. That's right. I did it. Okay, so let me set the scene for you. It was a dark and stormy night. In Georgia, the night the lights went out, perhaps, and on a great granite dome, men robed in white, looking like the spirits of the Confederate dead, ascended to the mountaintop like Moses for the tablets. And there, in the scene of supernatural power, surrounded by God's glory in nature... They started this shit again. God damn it. (laughs) So there was a man named William Joseph Simmons, and he was a failed preacher. Not a failed president, but a failed preacher. Oh, this is going to go well. Yes. He's attempted to have several congregations, all of them have been like, no, shut up, you're ridiculous. So he's going to take all of his ideas about ritual and congregation and building loyalty and things like that that he's learned through his training to go out and preach the gospel to preach the gospel of the clan. So you can see already that this is very dangerous. And then he's taking the new kind of rebranding like popular image of the clan from the movies and using that to his advantage. Right. So with the movies, we get the burning cross which is now very much synonymous with the Klan. But it's from the book and movie. Correct. There's there's no evidence that this occurred prior to the second incarnation of the Klan, which was based on the book and movie. Right. It was the just book a story. Is better. It was just a story, Jacob. Until Simmons was like, let's make this happen. He rounded up 15 followers, and he and his henchmen went out to stone mountain georgia on the day before thanksgiving middle of the week you guys it's a wednesday get it together and at the midnight hour they did some hoodoo no they didn't they did some made up ritual yes and of the experience simmons would say 
And thus, on the mountaintop that night at the midnight hour, while the brave men braved the surging blast of wild, wintry mountain winds and endured temperatures far below freezing, bathed in the light of the sacred glow of the fiery cross, the invisible empire was called from its slumber of half a century to take up a new task and fulfill the new mission for humanity's good and call back to mortal habitation the good angel of practical fraternity among young men no no don't do that right so this is he is um going a little little jake and elwood up in here and he's on a mission from god and he is going to wake this sleeping giant that's been asleep for more than half a century interestingly i read this in a report that was not fond of the clan and the author pointed out in 1926, that um, he checked the weather records and it was not below freezing that night. <laughs> he was like, you're full of shit. It was hot. <laughs> <laughs> They're not in the mountains either, which is so ridiculous. Well, it's a mountain. It's a dome. Right. Just like our dome. Right. But it's not. There are only two in the country. Well, you know what? Ours is better. It's pink. It is pink. And it is better because there are no Klansmen on it. <laughs> well, of course, Stone Mountain has a half done Confederate monument carved into it. <laughs> I could have gone my whole life without knowing they did that to that beautiful, beautiful dome. So Simmons definitely takes to this ritual idea. They were like, let's make up silly names. Let's be Cyclops and Turks. And he's like, I am the Cyclops. I am the Turk. And he also promotes himself. Where you have Forrest, who was the Grand Wizard. Simmons becomes the Imperial Wizard. Oh, you think you're better than Forrest? He rode around in their bedsheets. And he put a lot of emphasis on into organizing a very regimented hierarchy for the structure of the group. And he just really loved the pageantry that the clan could provide. Now, this does strike me as a very Protestant thing because we are so jealous of Catholics. Growing up, I always wanted to go to, and I'm telling you, this is actually what I told my mother, real church where they wore robes. That's right. It's real church. <laughs> And she said, Samantha, we're not going to the Catholic Church. And I said to my mother, but Jesus was Catholic, and her little Baptist brain exploded. Jesus was a Capricorn. He ate organic food. But here's a sample letter written by Simmons. And this is just the salutation, so buckle up. To all genie grand dragons, hydras of realms, grand goblins and kleagles of domains, Grand titans and furies of provinces, giants, exalted cyclops, and terrors of cantons, and all the citizens of the invisible empire, knights of the Ku Klux Klan, in the name of our valiant and venerated dead, I affectionately greet you. He's wordy. And vague. And really into these names. Oh, yes. And so I've written a brief statement for you. I submit to you a proposal. D&D could have saved thousands of lives and ushered in an earlier adoption enforcement of equal civil rights for all in America. This guy just wanted to LARP. Yeah, he, we need some LARPing. He wanted to LARP so bad. And this was his socially acceptable way of getting to dress up in cool costumes and call his buddies weird names. Well, I think it's an interesting point, too, is that the white robes, while there were people in white robes uh, prior to this, it became like codified as clan in this time period this and it's, incarnation yeah and it's from the book and movie mm-hmm. uh, right there was no much. standardization of robes like you see now 
or like you saw then. We see it now too. Right, but they still. Unfortunately, there are four different clan groups now, and they all have different color coding for high-ranking officials. Guys, if we don't get through this episode, my head's going to explode because I have learned so much about the clan. I'm about to die. So what was the clan setting out to do now? Was it again just like, we're better than the blacks. We don't want them to vote. We don't want them to have personhood. And how. But. And also, they had a new list. And so Simmons sums up the purpose of the Invisible Empire as such. In the ABC of the Invisible Empire, which I'm hoping was a board book, he says that their purpose is to shield the sanctity of home and the chastity of womanhood, to maintain white supremacy, to teach and faithfully inculcate a high spiritual philosophy through exalted ritualism, and by a practical devotedness to conserve, protect, and maintain the distinctive institutions, rights, and privileges, principles, and ideals of pure Americanism. 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 Fantastic. So we're going to make America... What? Great. Same. Same. In his mind. Same. Yes. In lots of people's minds. So they really got on this bandwagon against anything that was immoral according to their read of the Christian parts of the Bible. The that... Protestant Christian parts of the Bible. Yeah. So they're even missing books. It's like you're not playing with a full deck there, sir, in so many ways. But yeah, so there was a big campaign that was put out and lots of ads. Now, he was a big, big PR guy. He actually had two people working with him. Like full-time. Full-time. Now, they approached him and were like, we can make this organization grow and grow and grow and grow. If any of this sounds familiar to you um, and makes you want to vomit, good. (laughs) Because it should. So, they were like, you're a crazy nutbag. You are going to do great on radio and in print. We can get you into all 50 states. Yeah, and ads everywhere are 100% Americanism. Right, and Americanism for Americans. And restore America. Yeah, yeah. Veiled racism. Oh, so thinly veiled. And something that was really interesting about the Klan at this time was they charged everyone who joined a $10 fee. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Yeah, it'd be about $125 today. It's a good amount of cash, and then I'm sure you had to buy the robes. No, it act- oh, I read a paper about this. Really? Yes. So it covered your robes. Oh, well, that's nice. Robe included. 100% Americanism. Join the clan. Robe included. Yes, TM. It's like karate. <laughs> so it did, and they would lie about how much the garments cost and like what they were made out of. and like, The finest American cotton and silk. Picked only by Negroes, we promise. Yes, yeah, something like that. They would tell people that, you know, just to get the robe would cost more than 10 We're really doing you a favor, but estimates range from about 250 to $4.10 for the robes. So the rest of that was all profit. But because they were charging this membership fee, it kind of added status. You had to be able to afford it. They also waived the membership fee for any Protestant clergy who wanted to join. Oh, well, of course. Right. So they had a lot of pastors, preachers, etc., who were normalizing and legitimizing this brand of morality and putting the stamp of Christianity on it. Right. They would march into the churches in full regalia, make a donation to the church. The pastor would accept it. 
and bless it. bless it. And then they would quietly leave. And they were letting everyone know the clan was in town. Right. And so after you are recruited and you're recruited by getting mysterious letters in the mail, of course, how else are you going to be recruited? By Kegels. Kegels. Oh. Different. Whatever. Different. Yeah. These did not make your vagina stronger. They were protecting your womanhood. Eh, it's true. It's way too close for comfort now that you say it. But Kegels were the recruiters. They were in charge of all this. And King Kegel was in charge of his state. They like the alliteration, too. Oh, and it was a convocation instead of a convocation or a convention. Everything had a cluh on the front of it. It's obnoxious. It's like a seventh grader wrote it. So you would get these mysterious letters, and then you would be told that you'd been chosen, you'd been weighed in the balance and found not wanting, etc. Strong, brave, real man. Mm-hmm. And so do not tell anybody about this. Please tell everyone about this. Then you would go at midnight to some preordained place and you would do some rituals and it seems like pretty basic secret society oath taking etc flags and burning crosses and daggers and bibles and oaths yeah so like D D. so i mean how could this happen how i mean obviously you have that pr mm-hmm. from the movie it kind of helps normalize that idea But how did this take such a hold? I mean, this spread to every state. I mean, within 15 months, you had 100,000 members. You have to understand that America was going through a very radical amount of changes at the time. We were having a massive wave of immigrants uh, coming through Ellis Island, etc. It's estimated that about 23 million people immigrated to the United States during this period of time. We've also just survived the Great War. The war to end all wars? Yeah, that went well. Never say it. And we went out and looked at our enemy, and they were foreigners. No. They were going to kill us all. And so people came home with, like, a new commitment to xenophobia. Hooray. At the same time that we're getting all these immigrants. So there's a lot of tension between this anti-anybody-but-Americans feeling and the amount of people who are coming to become Americans. And then as we've talked about, you're having this mass migration of all of the former slaves well at this time they were their children etc you know moving up north right the first generation of freedmen are headed away from the south because wouldn't you be so what we have to do in this moment is open the umbrella of hatred and oh, definitely and yeah. bring mm-hmm. everyone under it and then we need to light a burning cross on top who else can we hate? Oh, well, the Jews. Oh, definitely the Jews. Definitely the Jews. They're going on the list and um uh, well, let's keep the blacks on there. That feels that feels right. Yeah, that's like an easy. You could just see it. Yeah, I mean they look different. Yeah, definitely. And uh, immigrants, we're gonna all have, of them. We're gonna have to hate immigrants. Italians, especially the Italians. Germans. Oh my God, the Germans. A lot of them are are Catholic. Yeah, so Catholics definitely going on the list. And actually, I'm gonna put it in bold. Why not two? Oh, we'll get to it later. And so Asians, they really didn't like Asians or bootleggers because they were, you know. The morality thing. The morality thing. Um, This was prohibition. Yes. Also, any kind of dope. We're not into that. Nightclubs, roadhouses, violations of the Sabbath. These guys are just like, no fun. (laughs) No fun. Sex of the pre and extramarital variety was highly frowned upon. And any kind of scandalous or salacious behavior. That is a broad umbrella. It is, you know, 
It's raining cats and dogs out there. We're going to need this thing. So in the past, you had everyone was in the south, very rural, small town, and it's moving up, moving to the north, moving to different classes of people. Expanding. I guess like you're right. a virus. And they had a new mission. It was centered completely on social vigilance, trying to figure out what people were afraid of and telling them that they were going to get rid of it. So one thing all these people in the North were afraid of was losing their jobs. Right, because you have this new workforce coming from the South. You have the first generation of freedmen, as I said before. And you also have immigrants, and you know they need places to work. So, oh my goodness, is your good assembly line job on the line because of these people who have no right to be here? And you'd also see it in the bigger cities in the South, too, like... Dallas and Houston were huge centers for the Klan. This is all horrible. And I feel like you and I have kind of skated under the radar of the Klan up until now. Like we would not have been targets of hatred and malice. But I think they would hate you. <laughs> Woohoo! So, Hooray! So let's uh, purge ourselves of some white liberal guilt. <laughs> this is how I know my family wasn't in the Klan. Exactly. Because they are hardcore. Cradle Catholics. Catholics. (laughs) So this section is called Catholic Bells just for you, honey. Oh, thank you. And it's all about. This is like for whom the Catholic bell tolls. Yes. That is the title. It tolls for me. It does. So I've included this just so we can can feel like we would have been persecuted a little. So the one thing the Klan was good at with equal opportunity is equal opportunity hatred. Yes, this is very true. So the Catholics were a particularly well-emphasized target. And I think that has something to do with, like I said, some jealousy issues over the Methodist, failed Methodist preacher not getting the cool accessories. And also a lot of the nations that we warred with during the Great War having strong Catholic dispositions. Yeah, but so did France. You think we liked them? So... During this time, they started distributing this propaganda that was very cleverly disguised to look like real documents like that the Knights of Columbus would use. And they were like, look what I found. And the Knights of Columbus is like a Catholic fraternal men's organization. That's like not nearly as scary as the Klan. No, I mean, it's like old men with hats and swords. (laughs) They're adorable. So this oath begins and it's like, hey, I'm pretty much polytheistic. Because I have to name 27 saints before I can get to anything. And then just like for good measure, I'm going to talk about the Virgin Mary's womb at length and swear by it. I swear by the womb of the sacred virgin. Okay, this sounds familiar. Does it? Did you swear on the womb? I mean, like there is definitely a veneration. Of the, the okay. Well, not of the womb itself. <laughs> of the vessel. <laughs> Whatever. And then it talks about how awesome the Pope is and how the Pope could kick anybody's ass if he wanted to. And that that is his right. And it says, I do further declare that the doctrines of England and Scotland, of the Calvinists and the Huguenots, and the others of name of Protestants or Masons to be so damnable and they themselves damned who will not forsake the same. And then it goes on. I will do my utmost to extricate the heretical Protestant or Masonic doctrines and destroy all their pretended powers, legal or otherwise. 
Oh, wait. Okay. This sounds familiar. I used to say this at Catholic school instead of the pledge. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm, so, I'm glad you're familiar. I will have no opinion of my own, any mental reservations whatsoever, even as a corpse or a cadaver, but I will unhesitatingly obey each command I may receive from my superiors in the militia of the Pope and Jesus Christ. Oh, the militia of the Pope. I mean, so this was something that was not just the clan that were propagating the idea that the Catholics were at the were under the red pump of the Pope. Yes. <laughs> that they would obey the Pope forever. I mean, you'd hear that kind of rhetoric when JFK. Oh my God. Was yeah. up for election. Yes. And then, you know, as a good Catholic, what are you going to do about all these Protestants running around? Well, there is a plan. Don't worry. Once concluded here, I do further promise and declare that when the opportunity presents, I will make and wage war secretly and openly against all the heretics, Protestants and Masons, as I am directed to do. I will spare neither age nor sex nor condition, and I will hang, burn, waste, boil, flay, strangle, and bury these infamous heretics rip up their stomachs and the wombs of their women and crash their infants' heads against the walls in order to annihilate their execrable race. What the fuck? You didn't say this part? I think that part was edited. <laughs> Redacted. You did. You just hadn't made it to the upper echelons yet. You didn't know this was going on. And it says, you know, always vote Catholic. And that Catholic girls were to be put in the homes of Protestants as spies who would report weekly. It was very specific on that point. And I'll always have a gun on me with ammo in case the Pope tells me to shoot someone. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So this document, I mean, it's it's almost like the Articles of Zion. Oh, my God. It so is. I bet that was the claim. It's old. Oh, it's so much older. We're going to do an episode on it. I'm so excited one day. So, yeah, this is baby Articles of Zion for Catholics. This is this is rough. So when the Klan was called before Congress, which does happen during this time because they're getting so big, they go have to go up and defend this document. And they're like, this is bullshit. And they're like, yeah, we know. But isn't it cool that we thought all these things and wrote them down for people to read? And yeah. So it was brought up as a fraud. And so from that point forward, whenever they circulated it, they would um, have a little thing tacked on the bottom that says, like, from the congressional record. Yo, you sneaky bastards. Because it was, but it was, they left out the part where they were, like, frauding. They claimed that all the major assassinations in the course of American history had been the result of Catholics using their guns, as the Pope told them to, and that 65% of all prison inmates were Catholic. All these statements, you have to replace, like, one word. <laughs> and they're still out there. Uh, okay, so this is, this clan, the clan is growing at yeah. an exorbitant rate. It is reaching every state, all of them, including all the northern states, which had some of the biggest clans out there. Oregon and Indiana had shockingly gigantic, enormous clans. Yeah, like Detroit had a huge clan. Well, they were coming for Mr. Ford's motor jobs. That's true. <laughs> and so, you know, we have to hate them. Get out your umbrellas. It's getting dark out there. So as they spread, of course, the violence spread with them. As violence is want to do when it thinks it has a cause. So in Beaumont, in 1921, so civilized history, two men were tarred and feathered 
by the Klan. They're still doing that? They are. And these were white men. This is a case of somebody not protecting pure womanhood. Uh, of course. Yeah. Then there was a sheriff also in Texas named Bob Buchanan. He started hearing that the Klan was planning a parade. And he's like, uh, they didn't ask for a permit. All right. All right. See, not everyone's terrible. Yeah. He's like, uh, they don't have a permit. They're not parading at 830 at night. No. And so he goes out there and he's like, guys, you don't have a permit. And they're like, uh, we're the Klan. We don't need a permit. Hello. He said it just like that. And he was like, oh, my God, you're obnoxious. Go take off your costume. Stop playing dress up and go home. Reaches out, grabs a cross from one of the guys in front. Oh, you do not do that. No, you didn't, they say. And then someone shoots the sheriff in the arm. They shot the sheriff. Did they shoot the deputy? Yes. Oh, shit. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but there was a massive gunfight following that. And then there was a murder committed by a masked man in Seabreeze, Florida in 1921. And he pulled a man from his bed and kicked and beat him and then shot him. And then in Texas, again, the letters KKK were branded on the forehead of a man who was horsewhipped after being found in the room of a white woman. Protestants and females who were considered to be immoral or traitors to their race or gender were targeted. Um, A divorcee with two children was flogged for the crime of remarrying. Oh, God. And then she was given a jar of Vaseline for her wounds. Oh, well, that's nice. And then in Georgia, a woman was given 50 lashes for a vague charge of immorality and failure to go to church. And her 15-year-old son saw this happening and ran out to try and protect his mother. And so, logically... (laughs) They did the same damn thing. Yeah. And this went on until 1924, when it was made public... That the PR moguls behind the Klan, Clark and Tyler, were found scantily clad in a house of ill repute, which would be bad enough, seeing as how they weren't married. But they were married to people that were not each other. Oh, no. Yes. And so these are the henchmen and women of the Klan. She was the head of the Women's Auxiliary Klan, and he was the number two guy. When it came out that they were doing something this hypocritical that really set people off yeah and you know there were lots of investigations into the clan that cued people into the hypocrisy that was involved with it i mean you have the first investigation which is this expose in the new york world that was in 1921 and it's one of those times where it's no bad press and It just gave more people the idea. More people were signing up. Well, Simmons had some thoughts on that. It wasn't until the newspapers began to attack that the Klan really grew. Certain newspapers also aided us by inducing Congress to investigate us. The result was that Congress gave us the best advertising we ever got. Congress made us. Good job. Good job, guys. So the Klan grew and grew. In 1922, there were... Three million members. As you mentioned, the woman's Ku Klux Klan had 500,000 members. And they didn't even like women. No, they were protecting y'all. You know, your virtue. It needs to be protected. My virtue has teeth, motherfucker. Leave me alone. <laughs> Vagina dentata. Um, yeah, there was this massive growth. And in a document by the Southern Poverty Law Center, they observed... 
It almost seemed as if people in the rural areas of the country were determined to support whatever big newspapers in Congress condemned. So as the claim grew, they did what any great organization does. They tried to manipulate the country and get into politics. Meh, what could it hurt? Who's going to stop us? The Catholics. So you had 16 senators elected that were supported by the Klan. They were candidates. They were. That was actually written. I know. And five sworn members. Like sitting senators and congressmen. Five of them were actually in the Klan? Yes. Active members of the Klan. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. And the Klan efforts were credited with helping to elect governors in 12 states in the early 1920s. And one of the states was Indiana. So Indiana actually had the most Klan members per capita during this era. And remind me where Indiana is. Above the Mason-Dixon line, y'all. I don't know anything about that. Above the Mason-Dixon line. I hear it's a mythical country and on top of it's Canada where where they wear your skin and make coats out of your hair. Well, I hear those Yankees have horns. They do. So these men had horns and... These men might have. <laughs> well, 30% of white males were in the Klan. Damn, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Um, David Curtis Stevenson, who is a piece of work, he's a piece of work, was the Grand Dragon of Indiana. So it was, you know, height of prohibition and the Christian establishment. And this really caught on with the good men of Indiana and some women too, I'm sure. And they had 35,000 Klan members. And you had to have the support of those 35,000 Klan members in order to get elected into office. So if you were to get Klan support, you would be asked to go into Stevenson's little hidey hole and he would give you a little promissory note. Imagine there's like thunder and lightning behind this. Very, very frightening. And he would have you sign a little thing, like basically sign Black Phillips book is what you're doing. Pretty much. So you'd write a thing. It's like, I promised to do this illegal thing for dude. So he had tons of blackmail material on everyone. And he did this in order to ensure leverage and in return, he would offer the Klan's backing in their official publications. But Stevenson, being a giant heaping pile of shit, just couldn't help himself. And in 1925, he met a young lady named Madge Oberholzer. And he took her off to a private train for an evening that she thought was going to be romantic. But he actually brutally raped her and bit her body all over. God, what drugs was he on? I don't know, but he gave her some too. Whatever he gave her did not react well. In addition to all the physical trauma that he'd caused from the outside, you know, external trauma to her body, he had also given her some kind of drug cocktail that was poisoning her from within. And she was begging him to take her for medical attention. And he decided that was not a good idea. And he decided that it would be a better idea to keep her locked in his quarters um, back at his house for 72 hours and then she was finally taken and like thrown out inside of her home a few days later and she was brought in doctors were called immediately but i mean she's been in really bad shape without any medical care for 
a long time and there's really not a lot that can be done for her. Over the 17 days following the rape, she recounts to the people that come to her bedside, including doctors and her family, etc., what happened and who did it to her. And she gives very strong testimony and definitely points out Stevenson. There's not a lot of question about who did this. You have victim as witness. And there's plenty of evidence that something bad happened. So she dies 17 days later. And Stevenson is charged with second degree murder. Wow. I yes. can't believe his friends didn't get him out of that. No. how It was abominable. I don't think there's any way to sweep that under the rug. It had been too public. When he didn't get his support that he thought he'd insured by these little deal with the devil contracts that he'd been passing out to give support, he released all the information. Oh, that could not go well. It did not. It was a huge blow to the clan. It made everyone very aware of the hypocrisy going on within the organization. You remember, they're supposed to be the champions of pure womanhood. Right, and then you have the governor and all of these elected officials that are signing these documents. Right, so it goes, sign the deal with the devil, ultimate hypocrisy exposed, young, innocent woman loses her life, he, in turn, exposes every bad thing everyone else has ever done, and then you have a Humpty Dumpty situation with a burning cross in the background. That's an odd image. (laughs) It's strangely accurate. (laughs) Kind of looked eggy. Right, and so this really decreased the power of the Klan. It splintered it dramatically. You also had the Anti-Defamation League. You had the NAACP all working to denounce them, unveil them. Curtail this growth and power right, that they, they were, were releasing, you know, lists of names that they could get, whatever they could do to try to break this up. And with this, with the hypocrisy, with David Curtis Stevenson's terrible act, with finding the PR guys and girls, you know, locked in a tryst, you know, this all helped bring it down. As the power was decreasing, you know, they tried to show how powerful they were. You know, they were really big into parading down the main streets and all of their garb just to kind of scare everybody. Or make everyone think that they had, like, were civically minded Gentlemen, like the Shriners. Yeah, sure. They'd have those little cars. If they had had the cars, we'd all be fucked. So this is when you have that huge parade in D.C. Oh, my God. The images. The videos of. Yeah. The images. But that just didn't do anything. The Klan really just falls apart after this. How many people were in the parade? There were 40,000 Klansmen. In this parade. down, And it went from like... Pennsylvania Avenue down by the Washington Monument, like that, like in the symbol of our democracy, we have 40,000 Klansmen who believe that they are better than everybody just because they were born without melanin and extra bits. And that they're Protestant. Oh, you're right. I forgot. And not foreigners. Yeah. Coming to steal your Where did they come from if they're not foreigners? Oh, that is a whole can of worms. But- So you have this rapid decline of the Klan after all of this hypocrisy comes out, along with the Great Depression. I was about to say, the Great Depression definitely didn't hurt. Nobody had 10 bucks. And then World War II. Yeah. Where all the men Actually had something to do. And they left. Yeah. And then the IRS in 1944 pulls like an Al Capone 
and demands that they pay $650,000 in back taxes. I feel like there's a little back room at the IRS like headquarters and you go in there and they have like like one of those crazy Jim Gordon Batman detective boards and they have like all the people they've taken down on it. <laughs> and it's like the America's most wanted of all time. Hell yes, we did it. And they're like, when you feel bad, when you're tired of telling old ladies that they owe you $6,000, go in there and take a look, son. So before we move on from this second reincarnation of the clan, we have to cover this little vignette. A vignette? I'm going to need your help with this one. Oh, no. So after World War II, folklorist, yay, folklorist. Did they argue? No. Really? He was a hero. Stetson Kennedy infiltrated the clan. I love his name. <laughs> and he provided internal data to the media and law enforcement agencies. He also worked with the creators of the Superman radio program. <gasps> Holy broadcast, Batman. No, Superman. Wrong catchphrase. And he provided them with secret information about the clan to no. try to help out them no. and help scare the clan. No. No, he didn't. So he no, that's too yes. awesome. No, it's too awesome. <laughs> it also helped like trivialize their rituals and code words. It's claimed that it helped decline in clan recruiting and membership. Because you don't want Superman to be pissed at you. So. Who wants that? We've got a script. Do we? A little piece. So during the first broadcast, Doc Green, a noted Klansman, receives a phone call from the Atlanta AP Bureau chief. Superman's really on your trail. Sounds like Superman's got a pipeline into your clavin somehow. You better watch your step. Well, I smell rat, the dragon said bitterly. Just wait till I get my hands on him. Well, you better make it snappy. Superman just flew over your imperial palace to case the joint. Nuts, the doctor said and hung up. I would watch the shit out of this. <laughs> this is a radio program. I know. We need to bring it back. We did. We did. We're bringing it back. So... As we said, after this, after Superman destroys the Klan and, you know, the NAACP and the Anti-Defamation League and Congress and the press and sensible people. Humans with consciences. <laughs> and economic depression and world wars. Yeah, that's all it takes. We just need to, you know, find some enough sensible people, a major economic depression and a world war and everything will level out, right? Like, where are we going to find those things again? Well, unfortunately, you know, as we've kind of alluded to, as we've kind of alluded to, the ghost of the Klan always seems to continue to haunt this country. South's going to rise again, boy. So in 1945, on that same Georgia Stone Mountain, the group got back together. They got the band back together. We're going on tour! They reorganized... They decided they were going to have self-governing units this time so mm -hmm. that we could not have this big elaborate structure that someone could bring down. Mm. Um, and, you know, one man was quoted saying, the Klan has never been dead. And the Klan's never going to die. One of the big things that really brought them back into action is the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. Ooh, yeah, they're not going to be a fan. Yeah, in 1954, the Brown versus the Board of Education passed. The desegregation of schools that, um, okay. 
Yeah, this is not going to go well for anybody. Yeah, militant bands grew, racial violence escalated, they would beat freedom riders. Even in one town, the police commissioner, Bull Connor, gave the KKK 15 minutes to beat the riders before the police came in. Dude, that was such common practice. It was. It unfortunately was. The law and the KKK had this really strong relationship in the South, especially. It was symbiotic, just feeding off each other, making the place more miserable for everybody. So between 1951 and 1952, 40 black Southern families' homes were bombed. Bombed? Bombed. Martin Luther King's home was bombed. Well, in 1963, September 15th, you had the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. This is one of the most horrific events that has ever happened no, it's, as it's an terrible. act of domestic yeah. terrorism. Yeah, four members of the KKK planted at least 15 sticks of dynamite attached to a timing device beneath the front steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church. They're good Christians. Yeah. In the aftermath of the explosion, four young girls were killed and 22 others were injured and they were there were three 14 year olds and one 11 year old and they had all been in a sunday school class together right, they were like getting their Choir robes on <laughs> it's just yeah. sad so terrible uh, and martin luther king said about it this is one of the most vicious and tragic crimes ever perpetrated against humanity no it's so true, it's so true. no prosecutions ensued until 1977 when Robert Chambliss was tried and convicted of first-degree murder of one of the victims, 11-year-old Carol Denise McNair. Thomas Blanton and Bobby Cherry were each convicted of four counts of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment in 2001 and 2002. Original conviction was actually overturned. So these, this terrible incident did at least have a little bit of a silver lining because it contributed to the support of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. No, they made martyrs. They totally went against their cause. You know, like, it was such a... The KKK in that day created a symbol that everyone could understand. Everyone could understand the idea of walking into a church, going about your business, going to the house of the Lord. I mean, especially in the South. And just for no reason, losing your daughter, losing your granddaughter. And children being killed. It's not like, oh, that terrible black guy is going to come for your woman. Like, it's, these are little kids. They're little girls, yeah. I mean, they could not have accidentally cast a more effective demographic. And that's, I mean, it is so atrocious that you can't have enough malice in your heart to be like, good, no matter what you believe. You cannot be like, thank God that happened. No, it's so true. And then in 1964, you had the Freedom Summer, where you had lots of northern white students coming down to the south to open it up. You mean carpetbaggers? They were carpetbaggers. They really were. Good for them. (laughs) Yeah, they were coming to try to get people registered to vote, to make sure these laws were actually being followed. You had one incident where Michael Schwarmer, who is a COFA leader in Meridian, Mississippi, and along with James Cheney and Andrew Goodman, were arrested for speeding. Huh. They were placed in jail. For speeding? Yes. For s- in a car? Yes. Okay. They were released in the middle of the night. Oh, shit. As they drove away, they were followed by a KKK hit team. Oh, Jacob. Who very brutally shot all three of them after pulling them out of the car and then burned the car. Hoover sent in the FBI 
and found the burned out car. And with the help of paid KKK informants, they were able to find the bodies of the three deceased workers. The volunteers, the people who gave up their summer, the young men who gave up their summer to come down to Mississippi and make sure that the laws of our nation were being properly enforced for all citizens, you mean? Correct. Because they were killed because they were not full of Americanism? Right. You know, there's laws of America. Oh my God, Jacob, this makes me so ragey. And so the FBI was on the case. The FBI and Johnson were not fans of the KKK. They held 18 Klan members... Uh, responsible, and the federal government had to prosecute them because the Mississippi was not going to. Right. And they used the old Reconstruction Era laws, the Enforcement and the Klan Acts, to prosecute them. Oh, this is the deprivation of civil rights. Exactly. And again, they became martyrs, and the outrage about, about this helped pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And LBJ really took a stand against them. He said in his speech talking about this murder, My father fought them many long years ago in Texas, and I fought them all my life, because I believe them to threaten the peace of every community where they exist. I shall continue to fight them, because I know their loyalty is not to the United States of America, but instead to a hooded society of bigots. Men and women have stood against the Klan at times and at places where to do so required a continuous act of courage. So if Klansmen hear my voice today, let it be both an appeal and a warning to get out of the Ku Klux Klan now and return to a decent society before it's too late. Damn, LBJ! He calls them out, and they, they sick the FBI Damn. on them. Yeah, this really helps dismantle the third reincarnation of the clan because how can you say that you are like just all about americanism if you're like if the president's standing there going this is not americanism stop it i mean he's calling you out he's like you are bigots you don't care about america you care about your own kind and that's it and it's a false brother oh my god it just makes me so angry jacob it makes me so angry in montgomery alabama where there was a massive amount of violence during the civil rights movement. The Southern Poverty Law Center erected a civil rights memorial. The architect that did the Vietnam War Memorial did it. And it's gorgeous. It's a circular piece of granite. And around the edges are the names of 40 people who have died as a result of clashes over civil rights. And there are 40 names listed. And of those 40 names listed on this memorial, 14 are known victims of the Klan. Known. There are some that, you know, were killed by anonymous masked men or anonymous masked groups where the connection cannot be completely substantiated by law, in court, whatever. So they suspect that there are more than 14 people of 40 who are victims of the Klan. So while the huge movement of the Klan in the South did really get knocked down by the FBI and Johnson's investigation. Again, the ghost still haunts the South. It absolutely does. And you have to remember that during that last incarnation that we saw, there was a new kind of thuggy class. I mean, that started way back with Forrest, right? Yeah, that's from the beginning. But there was definitely a group of just idle young men who were looking for something to do with their time. 
It was not the wealthy, well-educated landowners who were trying to protect their claims and incomes. So it's become just kind of a barroom brawl of a costume party. It continues in little backwoods communities to survive and thrive. And this became evident. So on March 22nd of 1981, little before 7 a.m., Mrs. Donald, Mrs. Beulah May Donald, gets phone call. And a woman says that they found Michael's wallet in the trash bin. Well, Miss Beulah May had been very worried all night because Michael, her son, 17, had not come home. And she was almost relieved when the woman mentioned that they found his wallet. But then the woman told her, No, baby. They had a party here. They killed your son. You'd better send somebody over. A few blocks away, Michael Donald's body was hanging from a tree. On the front porch, across the street, there were members of the United Clans of America, and it was one of the largest, most longest-living versions of that ununified clan that came out of the last movement. And also one of the most violent. Yes. So a man named Benny Jack Hayes was the titan in the area. He was about 64 years old at this time. And that morning, he was looking at Michael's body hanging from a tree, and he said, now that's a pretty sight. That's going to look good on the news. It's going to look good for the clan. How can you think that? How warped must your mind be? So this was in response to a court case that had been, been tried in Mobile. A Birmingham man was accused of killing a police officer. Now, it is important for the purposes of the story to note that the police officer was white and the man on trial was black. The clan had been watching this case closely because there were 11 black people on the jury and only one white person and this struck them as very unfair and they didn't feel it was right that this guilty black man who killed a white man was going to get off now there's very little writing about this case he was found not guilty there's no reason to think that he was not not guilty but the sentiment around the clan was if a black man can get away with killing a white man we ought to be able to get away with killing a black man, because that's logic. So Friday night, the jurors announced that they were deadlocked and could not reach a verdict, and this pissed the Klan off, and they all met up at Benny Hayes' house, and that's the gentleman who called the body of a 17-year-old hanging from a tree a pretty sight. A young man named Tiger Knowles, his real name was James, you can call him Tiger, was 17, and he said that he bought a pistol he'd borrowed, and Henry Hayes, who is Benny's son, who is 26, took out a rope. And the two got in Henry's car and went hunting for a black man. Just anyone? Any man that is black. Yes. So then they stumble across Michael. He was walking home alone. And they stopped and called him over to the car and asked him for directions. And then they forced him into the car at gunpoint. They took him to the next county. And then they beat him with a tree limb over a hundred times. One thing I found very interesting is they talk about how hard it was to get him to stay down, how strong he was, and how hard he fought them. And they're not trying to build him up in any way. They're just, he really did not want to die. Eventually, they managed to get this noose over his head, and they pulled it tight and strangled him manually using a noose. And then to make sure he was really dead, they slit his throat. And then they went back to Herndon Avenue and hung him in a tree. Henry Hayes and Knowles returned to a party at Benny Hayes' house. 
and showed him what they had done. And so he said, you know, go put him in a tree. They raised it just high enough off the ground so it would swing. So they were trying to make it look like a lynching. Yes. Like an old time lynching. Yes. Drawing on that proud history. Yeah. So on the night of the murder, Klansman had burned a cross in front of the Mobile County Courthouse. So we have the burning cross. We have Michael's body. So I'm guessing the police put things together pretty quickly. Well, of course, there was the victim blaming. Of course. You know, people said that he had been having an affair with a white woman, which would have been fine. But that that is what angered the Klan. Not that he was just a random innocent victim. And then, of course, they had to say, well, it was probably drug-related. Definitely drugs. Cle- clearly, these are things that drug people do to each other, not white people do to black people in the South. Clearly. But Beulah May was having none of this. She said, come in my house, look through his room, tear the place apart. You will not find any drugs. She said his only vice, as far as she was concerned, was smoking. And she'd tell him not to smoke, and he'd say, Mama, I'm going to college. Can I have a cigarette? Because he was the youngest of seven children, and he was the first one that had the chance to go to college. And she would later say, like, I guess my only consolation is that they didn't throw his body in the river like they did so many other men. Which you have to think back to some of the things we were talking about earlier and the importance of burial traditions in the African-American community within the South and how, like, this adds another level of horror you know the importance of dying in ease which he did not do no and it was very much on display for everyone to see so thinking back to those traditions i think the statement becomes even more powerful there was no way that any kind of reconstruction could be done on michael's body because the damage was so great i mean he'd been beaten with a tree limb over a hundred times he'd had his throat slit he'd been choked and there was no way to make him look presentable for an open casket. So they told Beulah, it's going to have to be closed casket. And she said, no, it's not. I want it open so they can see what they did to him. God, this woman is strong. She is amazing. So in 1981, a protest march was organized by Reverend Jesse Jackson. And there were 8,000 marchers. And he just kept telling them, do not let them break your spirit. So... Nothing comes of this. Nobody can connect the dots. There have been two FBI investigations. It has been two years. And finally, 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 things start to move and we get a confession. Tiger Knowles is the one who finally opens up to investigators. And he says that on the night of the murder, when he was 17, remember, so he's a kid doesn't excuse what he's doing but it makes you see the level of brainwashing and like how early people are indoctrinated into this hateful shit no definitely yeah i mean it's it's terrible i mean these are kids but as we know these ideas start very young right indoctrination takes time so he says on the night of the murder he'd returned to benny hayes house with blood on his shirt with this new evidence the justice department was able to convene and get a investigation and a grand jury started in mobile the Klansmen who were called to testify did not bring lawyers in with them. In short order, one witness told the grand jury that Henry Hayes had admitted everything to him. This got back to Tiger Knowles, who began to worry that Henry Hayes would confess. So, prisoner's dilemma, what do you do? So he decided that he would take a life sentence for depriving Michael Donnell of his civil liberties using that old reconstruction charge which is a federal charge, so he'd go to federal prison instead of state prison. 
and he would have to testify against Henry in court, but he said okay. So what we have unfolding now is this massive trial. So in June of 1983, Knowles confessed to FBI agent Bodman. Henry Hayes was tried for the crime of capital murder, which is really interesting in Alabama. You can only be tried for capital murder. There are several other states like this. If you commit murder while committing another felony. So they had to prove that he'd stolen something from Michael Donald. And so the wallet in the trash can didn't have money in it. And so they were able to, anyway, so they were able to charge him with capital murder. Right. But whenever he was convicted by the jury, they gave him life. Yes. And the judge was like, nah, this is terrible. Electric chair. Yeah. And interestingly, that jury had 11 whites and one black right. guy on it. And that was the complaint originally when they went out looking for someone to kill, is that the jury was too biased. This jury was not too biased. They still found him guilty. Hayes did appeal his conviction, but an Alabama Supreme Court judge upheld the decision and said, we cannot imagine a case in which the death penalty is more justified. But Beulah May said, you can't give life, so why take it? You kill an innocent person, and that person stays with you day and night. Yeah, she was, oddly enough, the person that was most supportive of them commuting the death sentence. But in early 1984, Morris Dees, who is one of the founders of the Southern Poverty Law Center, decided that he wanted to file a civil suit against members of Unit 900 and the United Clans of America, with Beulah May as the plaintiff on behalf of Michael. And in order to do this, in order to successfully prove that she had a case, a claim, against the United Clans of America, he had to prove that they were carrying out an organizational policy, which was set by the group's imperial wizard, Robert Shelton. Yeah, and Shelton's men had been involved in the beatings of the Freedom Riders at Birmingham bus stations in 1961, was involved in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombings in Birmingham in 1963, and the shootings of Viola Liuzzo near Selma in 1965, which is another kind of landmark civil rights murder, if you can even say that, but it was one of those atrocities that helped kind of get things into the limelight and get things moving in the positive direction. Call attention yeah. to how bad things were. So after hearing the case, the all-white jury in Alabama deliberated for four hours and then came back into court and announced that in 1984, Beulah May was going to be awarded $7 million. So this helped dismantle the Klan. It did. They had to turn over their headquarters building in Tuscaloosa. And liquidate all their assets. But there was a really interesting moment in the courtroom. Knowles was giving testimony. Knowles is the one who confessed earlier, Tiger. And he, while on the stand, said, I've got just a few things to say. He stood up in front of the jury box. I know that most people tried to discredit my testimony. I've lost my family. I've got people after me now. Everything I said is true. I was acting as a Klansman when I'd done this. And I hope that people learn from my mistake. I do hope you decide a judgment against me and everyone else involved. Then Knowles turned to Beulah Mae Donald, and as they locked eyes for the first time, he begged for her forgiveness. I can't bring your son back, he said. God knows if I could trade places with him. 
I would. I can't. Whatever it takes. I have nothing, but I will have to do it. If it takes me the rest of my life to pay it, any comfort it may bring, I hope it will. By this time, jurors were openly weeping, and the judge wiped a tear away. From the back of the courtroom, Mrs. Donald said, I do forgive you. From the day I found out who you all was, I asked God to take care of y'all, and he has. And through the courage of Beulah Mae Donald and with Morris Dees and the Southern Poverty Law Center, who are still doing great work today, you had a dismantling of the organized clan in the state. Right. We cut off another one of the Hydra's heads. But heads keep growing back. They do. God damn it, they do. And unfortunately, they keep growing back in different ways. <sighs> so there is still a clan today. It's... Nothing like it was. It's a very small, shattered, disorganized group. They still kind of hold to those ideas of separation and supremacy of the white race. And the government is cutting down the white race. And they say they are going to do anything by whatever means necessary. But the thing is, the organization of the Klan has just continually had a decrease in numbers and membership. In 2016, the Southern Poverty Law Center stated that there were probably about 6,000 members nationwide. The decline of groups like the KKK really is deceptive because there are other ways to hate. There are other outlets for it. There always are going to be. So this brings us to Dylan Roof. This is a 21-year-old guy, and he was a white supremacist. An important note is that he was not any member of any hate groups. He wasn't a skinhead. He wasn't a neo-Nazi. He was not a Klansman. He well, had just you know what to do? the internet. Oh, shit. The internet. No. We're doomed. <laughs> he was completely self-radicalized. He was an avid consumer of racist material online, and he even published his racist manifesto. Oh my god, I bet it is the most awful document. I bet there are typos, spelling errors, uncredited quotes, and source materials. I bet I would give it a D-. minus. Well, so he started scouting locations. He was scouting several churches and festivals. And he found one church, the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Why was he looking for churches? Did he want to become a member? He was not a member of a group. Therefore, he must have wanted to become a member of a church. And they said, cool. And he was baptized into the church. And everybody said, yay. Unfortunately, no. No? No? So, he'd been to this church numerous times. At least a half a dozen. Oh, my God. And on June 17th of 2015, he walked through the side door of a church and took a seat at the weekly Bible study meeting, where they were studying the parable of the sower. As the group closed their eyes for benediction, gunfire rang out. Dylan Roof pulled out a gun that he had kept concealed and fired upon the group. Bullets struck people 60 times. He killed nine parishioners. And at one point, he approached one woman, Miss Shepherd, and asked whether she was wounded. She said she was not. And he said, I'm going to leave you to tell the story. So he did this and just walked out, got in his car, and drove off. Now, the next day he was arrested because he did leave people to tell the story. 
And he was actually very cooperative. He answered FBI agents' questions eagerly and in a matter-of-fact tone. In his manifesto and other things, he, in his confession, he wrote that he mounted the attack because no one else would take a stand against what he perceived as an epidemic of black-on-white crime and the relegation of white Americans to second-class status. Okay, that is the biggest ma- that is the biggest steaming pile of bullshit I've ever heard. If you Oh, wait for it. Black people are killing white people every day, and they rape white women, 100 white women a day. Oh my God, I see someone's been reading Simmons pamphlets. Right, he called himself a white nationalist and a white supremacist, and he subscribed to the ideologies advanced by the Klan and neo-Nazis, but he was not a member of any of those groups. He probably didn't have any money to pay the dues. Well, he talked about the declining influence of these groups and said, nobody else would do anything about it. I wouldn't say I'm glad I did it, but I had to do it. Baby, you crazy. He hoped his attack would agitate race relations and awaken white Americans that they are second class citizens. Did he fucking paint Helter Skelter on the church? I mean, like, Jesus Christ, he's trying to be Charles Manson. Right. And so, you know, as they found his manifesto and they found his information, he was not raised in this, like, really racist household. This is not things he grew up with. He read things online. And this started with him looking into information after the murder, I want to call it, of Trayvon Martin. That was a murder. Yeah. I feel very comfortable saying I that. I have no problem. And they found photos of himself, like, with the rebel flag and things like that. And this actually led to the removal from the grounds of the South Carolina State House of the rebel flag. The Confederate flag, right? Yes, the Confederate yeah. flag. Yeah. yeah. Which was a big deal nationally. Like people had to pay attention to it. Yeah. But and it really worked against his agenda, didn't it? Did the exact opposite of what he wanted. This also became kind of a rallying cry for people to kind of look at this. Look at what's happening. Look at this. You know, everyone was talking about this post racial America. Obama was elected. We don't have race anymore. I don't see color. If you don't see color, it's because all your friends are white. On December 15th of 2016, he was charged with 33 counts, including hate crimes resulting in death. Lawyers conceded his guilt, and in closing arguments, the assistant U.S. Attorney General said, A man of hatred, a man who's proven to be a coward, and a man of immense racial ignorance. Accurate. So, at the time of recording, we're still waiting to see what his sentencing will be. So this is a great example that you don't need the Klan anymore. That doesn't have to exist to have this radicalization of racism. But unfortunately, groups are coming about now. This is something that has really taken a rise since the election. The 2016 presidential election. Correct. If you're listening to this in some far off distant future in which we all have unicorns and eat rainbow stew. So the Southern Poverty Law Center stated that you have these groups like the alt-right and you have people like Donald Trump saying things that are, quote, demonizing statements about Latinos and Muslims that have electrified the radical right, leading to glowing endorsements from white nationalist leaders such as Jared Taylor and former Klansman David Duke. 
The alt-right has benefited from these public relations efforts to rebrand white supremacist and racist ideologies and graft them onto mainstream politics. But compared side by side, the alt-right platforms appear to just be age-old white supremacy. So even though you have a decline in groups like the KKK, neo-Nazis, racist skinheads, neo-Confederates, etc., you don't need those groups anymore. Because now it's being normalized. It's being put into the mainstream. And that's something that is not okay. No, it's not. So unfortunately, while ideas of hooded men racing through the night, acting like ghosts to scare people into getting into line might be just a story now. It's only because you don't need the hood. It's only because you can do it on TV. It's only because you can do it from the Oval fucking office. That's not just a story. That's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.